From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 200. This is our podcasting extravaganza, and you know what, Jason Snell? We can now ring in, we can hear the waves, we can hear the oceans, because it is the Summer of Fun! Summer of Fun is back and it's bigger than ever, and boy, oh boy, have we got a huge Summer of Fun planned for you this year. Have we measured how big the summer is versus last year, and are we sure that it's going to be bigger this year? I think it's going to be bigger. It is bigger in... It's planning and execution. This is not true. necessarily in this length. This is true. We have been planning the summer of fun for months. It's now. also big milestone wise. It is because as as many people out there may know, um, you're going to get married this week. <sighs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but nobody wants to hear about that, Mike. What's the snow? Nobody talk wants question? to hear about that. Hashtag Snell Talk question comes from Kyle, and Kyle wants to know, for your various projects, is there a specific time that you aim for when publishing? Oh, this is, uh, this is an interesting question. So I'll tell you, first, back in the day when we were at uh, IDG, when, when we were publishing lots of stuff at IDG, um, we often posted things at like 11 in the morning, Pacific, which is like two in the afternoon. And we did that largely because that was when uh, peak traffic was. Like for whatever reason, 11 a.m. Pacific to Eastern was like peak traffic time every single day of the week during the week, weekdays. And so what you wanted to do was post web stories like in the morning or up to that point. But what you didn't want to do is post them later because what would happen is the people on the East Coast would go away and they wouldn't see your stories. So the last thing you want to do is post a really great story at three in the afternoon Pacific on a Friday, right? Like, no, nobody's. That's when, that's when bad things happen. You post stories then mm-hmm. because companies release news about terrible things that they want nobody to notice because it's on a Friday evening. That's a real thing. The Friday evening news dump is a real thing that happens. So for podcasting, though, it's funny, and I'm curious what you think about this too, Mike. Like, I'm not sure that specifically when you post it is is super important the only th- ones that i think about it are like timely shows like i heard when i was doing clockwise i would hear from a couple of people that it was their regular commute home podcast on wednesdays and so if we were late and they kind of missed their commute home um, they were sad about that. And that was a podcast that, you know, we usually could get up, I could get up at like 10, 10 30 in the morning Pacific, which means it was in, on everybody's podcast players in the East coast when they were going home. But that's more about training people about when your podcast gets released than like the actual time of it. So I don't know. Do you think that there's like, um, a golden time to release a podcast? Not like a specific time every time. So, like, for example, if we are launching a new show, we tend to do that either between 10 and 12 a.m. So 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern time, because that we find to be like a golden hour of time where most of the markets that you're trying to get to will be awake and paying attention. Right. So, you know, you, you'll get Europe because it's still kind of late afternoon. Um, San Francisco and like California and all the West Coast are just waking up. Waking up, yep. And the East Coast is kind of like getting on with their day. So you have a chance of like getting to people that way. That's our belief. It's worked for us so far. It's just a good time. I, you know, I don't want to release things at weird times for everybody. So we do it at a mostly convenient time for most people. But when it comes to like each individual episode, like every episode of Upgrade, for example, I don't think that there is a... Like specifically, 
for any show a really good or bad time. I think that you know people build these shows into their lives mostly right. in a certain way I think so my feeling is just you pick your time and you stay consistent that's the key that's right that's all that matters which is which yeah. is funny cuz we are going to talk a lot about podcasting after we talk a little bit about this podcast reaching 200 episodes but I think that is one of the keys we'll just you know spoil it for later which is consistency is the important thing like I said about uh, the people who built clockwise into their Wednesday afternoon drive home like the point was we released it at a certain time every time and they integrated it into their lives at that time and you know you could choose what you want to do but consistency I think is important um, the only other examples I've got are um, for stories like on Six Colors and things like that, sometimes you've got an embargo. Sometimes a story has to go up at 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. And, and you wait. Occasionally, it'll be really late in the day and I'll be working on kind of a big story like a product review or something and I will show it to people. You you get those links every now and then where I'm like, oh, here's this review that I'm going to put out tomorrow. And I, des- I decide I want to kind of sleep on it. I want to let people read it, see if they've got any issues, if they think there's something stupid that I said or there's a mistake. And because I figure like launch again a big story late in the day is probably a bad idea so i do go for morning also my um incomparable default like my podcasting defaults in general there are two things i either do it in the morning like i do it like nine often eight or nine a.m pacific is when i will if if a show is done and i just need to put it out i will often do it then because then i'm awake i can promote it socially um oftentimes with um with these podcasts we have the ability to sort of set them to release later and so you do that and and i often set eight or nine a.m as the time the only other timing that i usually do for podcasts is if it's a podcast we're posting same day it's literally you edit it and then you post it and it's immediate and that happens a lot right by and large what I do with the vast majority of my shows yeah. is they are edited and published from the moment that they end. So the time varies, but it's relatively sa- the same. You know, like if you were paying attention, I bet Upgrade is posted around the same time every week. Yeah, if you went back and looked at the timestamps, you would find, and that's a function of us recording it at the same time every week. It's not a yep. release time. It's all based on the fact that we record it. Download is the same way. I actually give myself a little time after we record before I start editing because I mostly, it's like, uh, I can't bear to edit this right away. I'm going to walk away for an hour or two. But I bet you that it is largely posted at the same time. Um, even The Incomparable, which gets recorded because it's a panel show at all sorts of different days, all sorts of different times, um, but I have a specific time that I edit it every week, and that's why you usually see it on a Saturday, sort of midday Pacific. Um, sometimes not if I've got other stuff going on on the Saturday, but that's usually when I do it, and it's entirely a function of that I get up in the morning a, a little bit later on a Saturday, uh, wander into my office and edit the podcast, and then it comes out, and I can move on with the rest of my Saturday, sort of late morning or midday. So that was a, a fantastic question for this episode Thanks, sent Kyle. in by Kyle. If you would like to send in a, a question for a future episode, you can just uh, send out a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk and we'll pick it up. So yeah, as we mentioned, uh, it is episode 200 and today's episode is all about podcasting. We decided we wanted to do a podcasting special and considering we decided on that topic and it's episode 200, please allow us, dear listener, to be a little bit meta and talk about our show. Mm. 
for a few minutes. So I, I figured that, you know, I would expect that there are a lot of people um, that have been listening since the beginning, but not everyone. I mean, I know that's the case because of the way that our numbers have grown over time. Sure. So I kind of figured it might be worth rehashing a little bit, and it, almost as if we were be rebooting the show with what our origin story was. So, like, how did Upgrade come to be and i want to hear it from you really because huh. you are the impetus of why the show exists like i didn't pitch jason snell I right mean, you didn't pitch me but it came from you yeah so so when i was at idg i felt uh, very strongly that uh the people who worked at idg who were being paid to be writers and experts on tech stuff that they should be doing their uh, they should be doing podcasts for IDG. And the problem with that was that IDG was a company devoted to selling online, you know, selling web ads, basically. And so while we while we did podcasts, they were never really a priority, and they also were never really a, a money generator, which is why they were never a priority. So we ended up in this weird situation where, I mean, the one that everybody uh, who was around then remembers is Lex Friedman, who ended up doing a podcast called Unprofessional with Dave Wiskus for a while, and the whole idea there was literally baked into the premise was Lex can't do a tech podcast, so he, this is a show that's about everything but what uh Lex can't talk about or he'll be fired which was not really true but that was the uh, that was the idea is is you know we're 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 we own your tech savvy and knowledge as a publishing company and so you know we wanted to keep it separate now i've thought about that a lot and and you know i think there's a really strong argument to be made now that that was a dumb policy because the company was never going to do it i think i was just hoping that i could drag that the company into believing that podcasting was a thing but the reality is like it's a big publishing company. Even a, a, a network as successful as something like Relay FM to them would seem like uh, chump change, right? Because they want to make million dollar deals and things like that, right? And so it's one of these cases where even though there's a perfectly great business to be made there, um, that company was not ever going to focus on it. So for whatever reason, what that meant was that uh, with Chris Breen doing the Macworld podcast and and we started, that's where that's the origin of Clockwise is that I wanted to do a, another podcast. And so Dan and I just started doing Clockwise um, under their auspices. And we never, um, you know, I, I watched as people who are kind of like me were doing these these podcasts on their own and having great success. And I kept th- saying to myself, well, if I leave here, I want to do that. I want to do something like Hypercritical or The Talk Show or whatever, right? I wanted to do a show like that. Um, and so when I realized that I would be leaving IDG, I had that moment where I thought, okay, well, I want to do a podcast. Damn it. Now is the time I'm going to do that podcast. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I want it to be... Uh, my, my initial thought was I want it to be like... Um, hypercritical or the or uh, hypercritical and build and analyze and like that model the the you know dan benjamin is a person who is like representing the audience and guiding a conversation and there's a uh, there's the other person who is the tech writer you know media personality kind of person who it's sort of their show but then there's there's another person there who makes it work because i really believe that you know that's the that's the trick of this kind of format is that you've got that you get a you get a you build a relationship and you have the back and forth um and i think it's i think it's good so full credit to i mean dan and john being a great 
a great inspiration with Hypercritical, which is a show that I absolutely loved. So, um, and and Dan and and John Gruber, it's two Dan and Johns. Well, yeah, right with mm-hmm. a, with the original talk show. So that idea of a show. Um, and you guys had launched Relay FM, and I had been listening to you guys do um, do the prompt on Five by Five. And you know, I was listening. I think I was listening to ep- an early episode while I was driving back from product briefing at Infinite Loop, and I took a picture of like the prompt on my radio on my car dashboard as I was driving on Infinite Loop, which led to the whole riff and then about you me power sliding, me Jason power Snow, sliding yeah. around uh, <laughs> Infinite Loop and across the Golden Gate Bridge and all of that. And, and you and I had done some podcasts together, and I I talked to Stephen at least once, um, sitting in for you, I believe, on your old podcast. Yeah. So there was there was a bunch of connections there, and as somebody who appreciated the work that you guys were doing and and had just watched Relay get launched, I thought that's where I want to be. And so I contacted you, I believe, although it might have been you and Stephen, but uh, at some point it was you and Stephen. At some point it might have been just you. And, and I and I told you something that I literally told nobody else except for my family which was, I'm leaving IDG in a month, and I want to start a podcast, yep. and I want it to be with you. And so I brought it to you, and I, pi- I pitched you and said, let's, let's, do a, let's do a podcast, you and me. And to, uh, to my great relief, you said, yeah, let's do that. I didn't react that way. I mean, I don't remember <laughs> what I said. But to put it into context a little bit, I think Relay FM was a week old when you got in contact with this idea. Probably. So, it, 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 well, I mean... Part of the reason that I know this is um, th- when you announced that you were leaving IDG, uh, I was at my granddad's funeral, and that was only a couple of weeks after our company had launched. So, like, it was like a whole... There was, like, so much going on in my life at that moment. But to have... I mean, we were... It was about... If, I would be surprised if it, we were around for more than a week when you when you kind of reached out because of the way the timelines work. And it was... There was... Honestly, that was one of the greatest things that happened to us starting out because it was a validation of what we were doing, you know. We had just started this thing and we were trying to make it a real deal, me and Stephen. And then, you know, if you imagine, right, you've got this, this network and at the time it was... It was me and Federico and Steven, and we also had Brad, and we had Casey Liss, right? So we were doing Analog the Pan Addict. I was doing my interview show, and we were doing uh, what was the revival of the prompt, which is connected, and me and Federico were doing um, our first video game show on Relay FM together called Virtual. They were our five shows. And then you came in and were like, oh, by the way, I want to bring Clockwise over, and I want to start a show with you. So these were like two shows, and I mean, we were working it out, and we knew how big a deal this was going to be for us. It was just like such a no-brainer at the time, and we were like, it was amazing. Like, that, that the way the timeline of all of that worked out was just so unbelievable for us at a time that was so important. And I still, to this day, say that one of the reasons that I'm sitting here right now is because of Upgrade, because in our community you know, like in the mostly Apple-focused technology community, your validation of Relay FM that early on, I think really helped a lot of people pay attention to us. Because so, so early on in the company, it, it's, you know, you, you had, you could have gone anywhere and done this. You could have done it on your own. 
you have so many options, right? Like, yeah. you know, you, Lex Friedman still gives me trouble every now and then for not contacting yeah. him and saying, you know, hey, maybe I could anchor a tech, uh, a tech podcast for for mid roll. Every now mid-roll. and then, he's like, "Why didn't you?" Talk? I mean, it's it's good natured, but he's like, "You didn't even talk to me, Jason." Exactly. You could have done like how uh, the talk show is, right? Like sure. the talk show is is just on Daring Fireball, and you are obviously starting six colors. Yeah, but that but like I, I mean, I, that, I, that's I, part you know, of the point is that I didn't want to. I felt like I didn't want to mix the media like that right and also i didn't have six colors was going to be new so launching a podcast on a place that didn't exist before is not the same as launching it inside like daring fireball whereas having Mm -hmm. a a podcast network because that's to this show's credit that we got to be uh we got to launch it not out in the void but as a part of this growing collection at relay so it yeah i I hope that it helped both i i I see your point though like if if i provided some validation by like well there's this new thing called relay fm we'll see what it's going to do and one of the first things that it does is i exit idg and say i'm bringing my podcast with me and starting a new podcast at relay at the very least that gave relay a little momentum and that's great because that 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 was part of what i wanted to do because i think you know we had all of our launch stuff and people were excited and there was a bit of buzz about it and then as soon as that starts to die down we get this you know so i think it really helped us out very early on the timing was kind of kind of and we've had a couple of moments like this over the the history of our company and but this was the first one when you added gray and merlin and john and john syracuse that was that was a great moment in cortex in one day that was that was really fun too those are test shows though mike limited run only about 10 episodes just summer pilots they who knows if they're going to stick around the other weird thing i wanted to mention that people may not remember which is how the show started which is we all agreed in email and stuff to like start this sort of mid mid month um, mm-hmm. And then what happened was there was an Apple event, which was literally my last full day on the job, September 9th, when they announced the new iPhone and the Apple Watch, right? And I was doing uh, it was, that was a that was there was that day. The next day, everybody got laid off, and I left. And the day after that, I flew to Portland for XOXO, uh, which was super weird. And then and then I came back and launched Six Colors like the day I came back. Which was the sixteenth? Well, we, we have the timeline now, and right? We, and we so launched September ninth. Yeah. We launched Relay FM on August eighteenth. So it was just three right. weeks after our company that upgrade began. Right, and I was emailing with you in August about it too. So yeah, that exactly. was that was the uh, that it, it happened. It happened really fast, but it happened faster than we expected because <laughs> at some point I said to you after I had gotten my product briefing because that that's that's one of the funny moments about that is that. I knew that uh, that I was leaving the next day, and I got for the first time in a couple of years, I got the advance briefing for the iPhone. I got handed an iPhone and said, "This is under embargo until next Tuesday." And I actually said to the PR person who I work with for a very long time, who is no longer at Apple, I said to her, um, "I got something to tell you." <laughs> She's like, "No, no, 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 no." And I'm like, "Yeah, this is." I said, to, "I said tomorrow's my last day, but we'll, you know, we'll 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 uh, we'll take care of this." So I ended up in this really weird situation where Apple doesn't doesn't give products to companies; they give products to people. And so I had this moment of like, "Well, you gave this to me to review for MacWorld, but I don't work at MacWorld anymore. So what am I going to do?" And I ended up making a deal with the people who stayed at IDG and I said I'll tell you what I'm going to give you this review for free in exchange for plugging my site and they said sure that's great and it turns out because I was I was barred for several months from from being paid by them 
We had to, we had, you know, I had a severance agreement, uh, and, so. and I had to truly be severed for a while. And then my column that I write every week started the the day that I was out of that <laughs> severance agreement. Like, because I, I talked they, to they John. They always wanted to be in the snail zone. Yeah, I, I, I talked to John Phillips. He's like, yeah, we want you to do a weekly column, and you can start it on February 18th or whatever it was. I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's do it. And then, and we've done it ever since. So that was the, the horse trading for that one. But then I, then I email you and I say, okay, I got the iPhone. Um, we should do an episode of Upgrade about the iPhone um, to drop as episode one, which we weren't intending to do. Originally, it was just going to be we'd do an intro episode when I was back and you were back and we were going to all make it work. And then I was going to Italy. Yeah, and I was in Portland, right? I was headed to Portland and also trying to launch my new website in this whole... It was bananas. So I believe we recorded it like before I went to Portland, after I'd had the phone yes. for, a, for for part of a day or a day, and we talked mm-hmm. about the iPhone, and then we timed that to drop at the embargo time so that all of a sudden my review dropped, Six Colors is launched, because I launched Six Colors with a link to my review on Macworld and a reporter's notebook with like more iPhone stuff, because I figured you gotta, this is why I didn't take a break <laughs> after leaving my job, it's like, it's iPhone, it's the most important and most talked about product of the year, there's never going to be a better time to launch my site, even though it's ridiculous because I'm launching it several days after I leave my old job. And then upgrade number one also launched at the same time. So it was this kind of triple whammy of, of stuff that happened, which is, uh, it was, you know, in hindsight, I, I told people this, it was not anything I would choose to do, but given the circumstances, they were all exactly the right things to do. There was nothing better than saying, Hey, not only do I have a new podcast, but I have my, you know, I will talk exclusively about my review that was under embargo where I'm one of a handful of people or, you know, a dozen people or whatever to get one. And it's on that podcast. Like that was too, too good to to pass up, but it was just bananas because of our travel schedules and all the other timing. And that, so that's how, so upgrade number one is really weird because it's like a pre-taped episode um, and we don't really know what it's going to be. I think I edited it. I think you did. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, oh yeah. It's a whole thing. And yet it's got the theme music and everything. So obviously I had Chris Breen working in the background on getting me a right, theme song. I'd never heard the music, right? You heard it on the finished episode. Yeah. So anyway, the it's the first not, time I ever heard the theme music for our show was when the episode was usually published. usually launch a podcast, but there no. we had to do it. There were extenuating circumstances and it started a tradition that we have on this show, uh, which has happened a number of times that I don't know of any other podcast in our space that does this, which is embargoed product release episodes. Right. You know, we did it with Connected one time when Federico got the uh, 12.9-inch iPad. Yep. Um, But we do that on Upgrade. Like, you have access to products from time to time, and if if you do, we will record an episode in secret and publish it. And that's one of the things that I remain very proud about this show is that we do that and we're able to do that because – for reasons I'm kind of unsure about, nobody else does it. I mean, everybody has podcasts now, but they never make they make YouTube videos, they write articles, but they never have uh, the they never have these like embargoed things. I wouldn't say never, but it, it's much more rare than you would think. Um, and the other aspect of it too is even outside of embargo, we have with the show tried to make it a little bit more about. Um, seeing if we can hit a an Apple product event especially right 
after it happens, which is something that yeah. we strive to do, even if we have to move the yep. recording date a little bit. And that leads to a little inconsistency in our recording time sometimes. But I would much rather uh, tell people about the Apple event that I just attended on a Tuesday evening rather than wait until Monday rolled around again to do it. Because We like to be first. We, we, it's something that we, we consider to be important. And while consistency in podcasting is important, I think the great advantage of podcasting is you can drop an episode whenever you want. And mm-hmm. so we we do we make that effort. So I, I don't think yeah. that was all part of our I mean, we didn't really have a game plan when we got started. We had this this idea that it would be kind of we'd have some topics and we'd chat, and then all of a sudden it was it's a product review embargo and all of this other stuff going on. So uh we've kind of made our way. And and two hundred episodes later, um it's uh it's it's different from what we originally intended, but that's gonna happen anytime you do something, is that it's gonna evolve over time and in this case over almost four years i did want to talk just before we take a break i did want to talk about just touch on the way the show has changed from my like from the way that i approach it from my opinion of how this show is i i saw somebody describe this recently about a lot of the shows that i do and and it also applies to the shows that you were mentioning before like the five by five shows of having an expert and an enthusiast and i always play the enthusiast role in these types of shows, you know, like with you, um, with Gray, and, you know, like on Remaster with Shahid, who is like an expert, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's a developer. Like, I, and I've always enjoyed playing that role as kind of being the voice of the audience. And, and mostly because I tend not to have as much experience as the other person, you know, the pen addict is another great example, as my co host. And when this show started, it was 100% that. It was, uh, I'm going to get the opinions out of Jason, right? Like Jason's right. going to have the opinions and I'm going to talk about them. And part of it for me and why I felt pretty comfortable um, doing that is I didn't feel comfortable enough to be able to stand toe to toe with Jason Snell mm-hmm. and give my opinions about what Apple's doing because I just didn't really feel like I had the credibility you know, to to be able to do that, to be like, no, Jason, I think you're wrong. I think they're going to do this, right? Like, and it's like, how can I argue with that experience? But over the multiple, the many years that we've been doing <laughs> yes. this show together, mm, many years, my opinions have changed. And now, like, I feel like the show still has a lot of that, but it's different in that I will debate with you and give my own opinions. I agree, we might even draft things from time to time yeah exactly the draft is a great is a great one but i just feel like now i am much more confident in my own opinions than than i was previously and that again it's come with experience because i've been doing this doing this for like eight years i mean and i've been doing this show for like four years like i feel like at this point i kind of have something to say well exactly and we also build a rapport over time right like at the beginning where it was it was the that model i mean we all remember who listened to hypercritical that there were episodes where john would go start going on a rant and it was unclear whether dan was still in the room (laughs) like (laughs) he may may have gone to the bathroom maybe making himself a sandwich you know and that was part of the format and it was it was fine because dan's role there was not to um, share the spotlight with John so much as to as to kind of prod John and 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 steer the show like where it needed to go, and that's a logical starting point. But over time, I think with any show, it's going to evolve, and the, the the relationship between the people. And so you're right; like your your experience grows, your confidence grows, our rapport grows, and the show becomes something 
something different. And, you know, and I think that's, I think it absolutely has evolved. And I think that's good. We should also say one of the rules that we decided at some point along the way is that I was going to be on every episode. So we do have these guest episodes. We're going to have another one in a couple of weeks. Um, so that that is one thing. Like, uh, like yeah, it, it is still it, it it you know hashtag Snell talk right. So that there's that aspect. The show of it. is an- the show remains anchored around you, and I'm always happy to do that. Like we we serve our own roles. So like for example, I put the document together, but you're generating a lot of the content that I'm building from, right? right? Like and, and you know and and as well like this, it's just a difference in our styles, which we're going to get to in a little bit about the way that we put shows together. But and I'm yeah. always and I'm always happy to have that the upgrade is anchored around you because i have other places you, you I talk do about technology. See, that's that's exactly it and that's that's one of the one of the things that that we have to keep in mind is that some people it's tricky right some people listen to this show and listen to connected and listen to other stuff we do and mm-hmm. other people don't and so you don't want to not cover something but at the same time i mean this is why we do follow out and at the same time you also want to give the let the show be the show it's going to be and you know connected you are going to be participating with those other two guys in a different way than the way we do it but the way we've done it has evolved over time which i'm happy about because i am happy to just sit and talk i mean that makes your edit really easy when you edit the show (laughs) when i just sit and talk for six minutes on about some topic and you're like again you may be making a sandwich the old dan benjamin sandwich um so that happens sometimes but other times it doesn't and over over time, I think it's evolved that way, and I think it's good. But that's that's natural because one of the things I wanted from the beginning was I wanted to have a show that had that kind of rapport, and it takes a little bit of time. But I really like those shows, and and to be honest, because the Macro Podcast was very much an anthology, and even the Incomparable is very much an anthology. I'm on almost every episode, but the panel circulates, and I really wanted to do a show with follow up, a show where from week to week it was the same people. And they had that shared experience because I always felt like those were the strongest bonds you could make with a podcast is if you had had, you know, the people who were the same every week and the format was the same more or less every week. And ironically, even though I believed that none of the podcasts I did were that. So I wanted to do that. And that's what it is. It is kind of funny. Like, if you remember way back in the beginning... So much of our show was follow up. You were like wild for oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you were so excited it's about like it. That we did way too much. And now, you may or may not have noticed, listener, we barely do it. I mean, w- there has to be a really good reason for us to do follow up now. Yeah, we have to we have to say something spectacularly dumb for that to happen. But it like, does. It, or, oh, it happens. A, a story must have had to have changed significantly. Yeah. And the reason for that is because, again, you obviously have noticed this. Upgrade has kind of moved into a different format, which is segment based. We have a very segment heavy show. Sure. And that's just because over time. That has kind of been the path that we have fallen into, and I think that we both really enjoy that because it allows us to to talk about a bunch of different things. And you know, the advent stuff like chapters and things like that has really helped sure. make that kind of a, a better format for us. But we've done more than enough uh, naval gazing. Nobody wants to hear any more about this, Mike. I I don't think so. I mean, I could t- continue talking about it all day, but we should actually go on and do what people have been asking for, which is to actually give them some uh, some tips and some advice about how we produce podcasts and how they can learn from them 
But before we do, let's take a break and thank our first sponsor of this week's episode, and that is the fine folk over at Pingdom. They are the company who offer uptime monitoring and web performance management. If your website was having some problems right now, if it was struggling, if it was down, if people couldn't access your content or buy the stuff that you're trying to sell them, how would you know? Would you want to find out because somebody sends you an email? You don't want to find out that way. You want to find out immediately, and that's why you need Pingdom. They will give you the peace of mind that you need, that if something's going on with your website, they will contact you. You can set up a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different notification options. You can get a push notification. You can get text messages. You can have them email you immediately. It's all up to you, and that way, as soon as there is any kind of issue on your site, Pingdom will let you know. They are dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable for everyone. That is why they monitor the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, and they're going to make it so easy if you sign up. They use more than 70 global test servers to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. All you need to do is give Pingdom the URL, and they'll take care of the rest. So start monitoring today and get that peace of mind. Go to pingdom.com RelayFM to get a 14-day free trial, and with no credit card required, you can sign up right now then use the code upgrade at checkout to save yourself 30 percent off your first invoice and to show your support for this show our thanks to pingdom for their continued support of upgrade and relay fm so let's start out when we're going to give our little podcasting masterclass here today mm. by talking about the thing everybody wants to know because everybody needs it let's talk about our gear now it is worth noting that we are going to talk about what we use then we're going to talk about what we recommend. <laughs> if you don't have a podcast or you're just starting out, you've been doing it for a little while, pay no attention to what we're saying about what we use other than the fact that we're telling you what we think about these products because these are products that me and Jason now own after having done this for multiple years. Right. And they are significant steps up from what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is going to be what we recommend for somebody who's starting out or is pretty early on in their, in their process. Honestly... Personally, I would say that you probably shouldn't really own basically any of the stuff that we're going to talk about unless your podcast is making you some money of some kind from somehow. The fact is there is something, and I think partially it's aspirational, and I think partially it's people who are enthusiastic about yeah. technology like to hear about gear and what people are using. Like every time exactly. I take a picture of my desk, right, everybody's like, oh, what's that? Everyone wants to know. What? Yeah. I can't tell you how many people have, have asked me, how many how many people have asked me about the arm that my iMac is on. Like, oh, what's that? Yeah. And it's like literally the answer is it came with the desk, but I have figured out what model it is, and I, I send that to people. So people want to know, even if they're not... Uh, actually going to buy that stuff and that's fine yep. so we'll do it so let's start with the most important thing which is the microphone mm -hmm. so i use a microphone called the neumann kms 105 this microphone was recommended to me um by the microphone angel slash devil that is marco armand mm. Um, to the point that I arrived in Marco's house at one time and he sat me down in front of his computer and he put headphones on my head and he said, speak into this. Um, 20 minutes later, I had ordered all new equipment because the Neumann KMS-105 is... The, the, th the one thing I don't like about this microphone is it looks like a singer's microphone and it doesn't look like a podcasting microphone right. because it just looks like a regular microphone and I wished it looked slightly different. I don't know why, but that, that really bothered me initially. It looks like, it's look, looks like you should be on stage singing because that's kind of what it's made for instead yeah. of it being like you're in a, in a radio booth somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And uh, the two things, I don't know enough about this microphone to explain what's good about it. I will put in the show notes a link to Marco's microphone mega review guide so you can get an idea of from somebody who knows what they're talking about with this stuff because I don't know any of the terms for this stuff. But I can tell you the, the two reasons I love this microphone and the two reasons that I use it. One is it does a very, very good job of not picking up background noise you know, I have to be really in front of this microphone to talk into it. Like, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to move my head slightly to the left. I'm not going to move it. I'm going to take it further away. I'm just going to move it to the left. So now I'm talking like this. The only difference is I've just moved my head slightly. And you can hear a huge difference in the microphone because it does a very, very good job of picking up just what's in front of it and does a good job of not hearing the rest. And there are terms for this, but I'm not going to bore you with those terms because also I get them confused and I'll get them wrong. Uh, the other thing, and the, the main reason that I love this microphone, and the reason that as soon as I used it, I wanted to buy it, it does a better job than any microphone I've ever used of giving me what I consider to be an accurate representation of my voice. Um, when I use the Neumann, and I hear it in my head, and I'm listening to it later, it sounds to me like the voice that I know. And that's why I like it. I spend so much time listening to my own voice. I want it to sound normal. And with the with this Neumann microphone, it does. So I get the, the experience and the feeling of, oh, that's my voice, which is important to me. It's good. I, I know you I know you love it. It is it mm. is number two in Marco's rankings, mostly because even though it sounds better than the number one pick, it's many it's more too expensive. times expensive than the number yeah. one thing. And and I recommend I, I completely understand why Marco ranked to where he did because like like him, I believe it is better, but the amount of money more than the Sure Beta is seventy eight A, it is not that amount of money more for most people. It's only worth that money if you're in the situation that we are where it's like I have a business that is this, I can spend money on equipment and I get a marginal, like, d- better difference, right? And and that's what I feel like. So I feel like it gives me just enough. It gives me just what I'm looking for. And I'm w- because I spend so much time looking into it and that this microphone will, if I take care of it, last me probably 10 years, it was worth the investment for me. So mine is the Shure SM7B, which is also a pricey mic, although not as pricey as yours. Um, and ranked 16th in Marco's survey, which I find funny. Mm-hmm. I the, the bottom line is I think it sounds good with my voice, and I don't have my Marco says it unforgivingly picks up any room echo or background noise. I haven't really found that to be the case. That said, my office does not have a whole lot of echo. It is it is sort of accidentally pretty well soundproofed and pretty well echo proofed. Just again, I don't have any foam up, there, but I've got curtains and I've got insulation in the ceiling that's that's actually stapled in in these uh, these uh, sheets. So it's it's a, a really not very reflective thing, and I've got a bunch of stuff on the walls and carpet on the floor, and it's just it's not. But I I find it uh, my my favorite thing about the SM7B is that it is unlike yours a studio microphone. It's mm-hmm. it comes with its own. Um, mount so it mounts on a boom arm it's got its own mount it's got its own uh including the hardware of where you plug in the xlr cable it has uh built-in internal kind of bump protection shock mounting and uh and it's got a it's got like a windscreen plus internally plus the external windscreen that you can put on and 
Uh, and I like it a lot and I've gotten really used to having it. Um, and I, I get, I can get very close to the microphone and that's usually what I do when I'm speaking on it is my, my, my nose is often touching the microphone or at least the foam outside of it when I'm talking, I'm that close to it. And, uh, yeah, so it's good. If, if I had to do it all over again, I might just buy one of the sure betas because they're cheaper and they, I, I, they do sound very good. The reason that I don't, and I have a Sure Beta 58. I don't have the one that Marco likes a little bit better, but I have the 58A, and it's a good microphone. But like yours, it's a handheld microphone, which means if I do that, I've got to I've got to put a shock mount and a windscreen, and I have to I have to add all these other things to turn a an onstage singer microphone into a studio microphone. And the thing I like about the SM7B is it's already got all that. It, and it's it's a very clean kind of thing. It's just, it's right here. And since I bought it, I use it and I like it. So I, I have no desire to change it, even though I think that, sure, I could probably, sure, I could probably save, uh, have saved money by buying some other kind of a setup. But I'm okay with it because I think it sounds good. And I like how it looks and that I don't have to fiddle. I always was like having like... Yeah, the shock mount is weird or the uh, or the windscreen falls off or things like that that I was messing with. And with this thing, there's nothing to mess with. It's just it's just right here on the end of the arm and I can slide it away and it's super convenient. So we both use the same USB interface. So this is so both microphones that we own are XLR microphones. So they need a, a box in between the microphone and the computer to, to plug it in. They are analog signals that need to be converted into a digital signal. So we both have a, a product called the USB Pre-2 by a company called Sound Devices um, as our chosen USB interface. Um, can you explain why we both use this? Marco? Yeah. It's the same deal. <laughs> he, he, he had done the research for us. No, it, it's, I mean, there are, there are reasons. It's built like a tank. It doesn't require any special software. It's got like dip switches and buttons on it. So the, mm-hmm. there's this feeling like it's probably going to last a long time. It's a hard like metal shell. Um, it, it's made so that you can take it on the road as a musician or or, uh, or any you know anything like that and have it be in a case and moved around and bashed and things like that and it'll still work well. Also, it is going to for microphones that don't output as uh, as much uh, gain like the one that I use, you need one that's more powerful and that is not going to just make everything kind of hissy. And uh, so that's actually one of the knocks against the mic I'm using is that it really requires a more expensive audio interface like that. I did a story on Six Colors about cheap audio interfaces. I feel like, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I feel like if you start with podcasting, you should buy a USB microphone. Um, if you decide to get yes. a, little, a little deeper, there's a much greater selection of these XLR microphones. But at that point, the USB is not in the microphone anymore, which means you need a box that connects the microphone via the microphone plug, the XLR, and then connects the computer via a USB cable and is the one that's mediating between the two. And there are a bunch of boxes for under $100 uh, that are uh, are fine or that are under $200 for sure, but a lot of them are around $100. And those, those are the ones that you should buy probably if you go into an XLR microphone, not the $800 box that we bought. But that said, it's great. But, you know, it, it is great and it knows it. <laughs> and that's why it's so expensive. Yeah. my I have a recommendation and a little bit for one that I actually think is better for most people. 
um, but we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. We talk about our headphones. I use the Bayer Dynamic DT770 Pro. Why do I use those? Because Michael Armand put them on my head. I mean, I told you this was going to be a thing. Oh, boy. I, uh, my entire... What, from what I'm speaking to to what goes into my computer, I bought it all at the same time because mm. I basically sat down in front of Marco's setup and I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I need. And I'd been kind of like flirting with buying some new stuff for a while. And then this was it. And I, I like over the ear headphones. That is my, uh, my, that's what I feel more comfortable with when I'm recording. I like the kind of not like it's not sound. You know, it's not like sound isolation and like the, the it's not doing any noise cancelling or anything. But I like that it it just keeps things close, and what I hear the most very clearly is my uh, is my own voice. I don't like earphones that go in my ears. I find that to be very uncomfortable. Uh, me and Jason are in the exact reverse with this. Um, so I like over the ears and the Bayer Dynamic are. For me, I find them to be extremely comfortable over long periods of time, which is important to me. I was using the Sony MDR750s before this, um, which I know a lot of people use and like, but over multiple hours, they would start to actually hurt my ears because they kind of rested on them a little bit. But these Bayer Dynamic ones, the cups are very large and they they go all the way around my ears. So it's actually resting on my head um, and I find that to be way more comfortable. Yeah, I, I hate headphones <laughs> that's the, bottom, I know that's the bottom line is it makes makes me makes my ears all sweaty um and i feel that, that like the pressure on my head and i don't like them i don't like them i've tried different kinds i've never liked them i've used them from time to time i don't like them just let's just be clear i first tried um canal phones basically in ear monitors and uh was ruined forever essentially and for many years now, I've had um, custom, they're like silicone, instead of the little uh, rubber tips that go on that you pop on and off of, of a lot of these uh, kind of headphones um, that go in your ears, mine are silicone and they're from a mold of my ears. So they're the exact shape of my ears. And so I put that on and then I put that in and it's completely isolating uh, to the point where it's dangerous if you're walking around outside because you literally can't hear anything. And... Uh, except what's going through your headphones. So right now at my uh, at my desk here, I have Ultimate Ears Superfy 5 Pro in-ear monitors. These have been discontinued, but I still have them and they still work, so that's what I'm using. The best equivalent now is probably the Ultimate Ears 900s, which they still sell. Ultimate Ears is one of these companies that got bought out by Logitech, and Logitech hollowed it out from the inside to create a consumer product brand, just like they did with the squeeze box that I loved back in the day. So Ultimate Man, Logitech just they break everything you like. They they do. So Ultimate Ears, if you go to ultimateears.com, you'll get a flashy uh, ad for a bunch of little Bluetooth speakers that they are calling Ultimate Ears. That's the branding. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, they apparently recognized that they were also making a lot of money selling headphones to musicians. Um, because that's the primary audience that Ultimate Ears had sort of a consumer brand, but also had a, a high end for musicians brand. And if you go to pro.ultimateears.com, it'll actually show you the headphones. They do still exist. Logitech hasn't killed them yet. And the 900s there are kind of like it where they, they want to make, they want to take your, your ear molds and make like custom monitors where the, the whole shape of the product is actually custom. I don't like those as much because they're like a hard, they're almost like a hard plastic um, and they're not, for me, they're not nearly as comfortable as the the silicone ones that I've got, so which have more flex in them. Um, but 
uh, it works for them and that's great. But the 900s are kind of like that. And if these die, I might get those. Um, I also have a separate set of these custom earphone sleeves that are that work with Edemotic headphones. And um, I, I have a set of those attached to my, my other set of, because the, the, um, the shape of the opening is different, right? So they're not interchangeable. But I got a set that matched this, the size of Edemotic headphones. And those are the ones that I use as wired headphones on an airplane or something like that, or mowing the lawn. Um, and they're really great at blocking out all the noise. And uh, so, yeah, uh, and those are from ACS. And we'll put a link in the show notes. There's ACSCustom.com actually has a whole custom earphone sleeves thing where you go, again, you have to go to like an audiologist basically and have them make molds of your ears, which is a weird process. They put foam in your ears and then you have to sit there and it sounds really weird for a few minutes and then they pull them out and they send them out. And then they, I think they 3D scan them and then they can generate. Because uh, I, when I bought my, my second set, they they just had a file of the scan of my ears and they just made a new set for me with a different opening shape for the Edemotics. So I love them. They're pricey. Um, they're not for everybody. Although I will say that um, I like them so much more than I liked it when I was using the little kind of one size fits all or you know two sizes fits all in-ear. And I get when people say they don't like in-ear headphones because... Um, they're uncomfortable because they can be uncomfortable over a long period of time. It's absolutely true. And if you're not using customs like I am, they're totally more uncomfortable because they're not the right shape. <laughs> so I get it. But for me, I would never, ever, ever use anything else. I love them. Um, I use a headphone amp. Um, and not everybody needs one of these with the USB Pre 2, but for some reason for me, um, when I try and plug headphones in, I get a lot of interference no matter what headphones I use. I don't know what the situation is there. Um, I know it's not just a me thing, though. I know some other people that have it, but I know a bunch of people like you who just use the USB Pre 2. Yeah. Um, and I use, uh, by the unfortunately named Sheet Company, is how <laughs> I will say it, uh-huh. uh, I use their Magni product, which is just like a very simple headphone amp, but it does a really good job um, of cleaning up the audio signal that comes from the USB Pre 2 for me. All right. And I use a boom arm, so uh, my my microphone is connected to an arm which can be articulated, so I can move it up and down and around, and it's connected to my desk. And it keeps the desk free as well, so yes. I don't have a stand on the desk. Um, and mine is made by a company called K&M. Uh, the actual product is just a name is a list of numbers, so you'll find a link in the show notes because it won't help you. <laughs> yeah, so mine is the Heil PL2T. Very exciting in that it is a boom arm that you can stick a microphone on and it's clamped to the side of my desk, which means that when I'm done with a podcast, I can push the microphone away and it goes away and then it's not in my face. What I like about my uh, boom arm, which I didn't have for my previous one, it actually has an integrated XLR cable in it. So I don't need to do any kind of cable wrapping or anything like that. The the XLR cable is built into the boom arm itself. I really like that. Yeah, that's nice. Mine is not like that, but mine is... um it's got a little uh, little uh, trench in the in the metal of the arm mm-hmm. the, where you run the cable, and then you snap a little I plastic, used to have this one, plastic thing on top. Yeah. And so this it, is what I upgraded from. Yeah, so it's it's, it's fine. It, it does it, and the cable doesn't get in the way. Yeah, mine broke though. Uh, right, so like my my higher one broke, and so I needed to change it, and then I went with the K and M one because I went with a little upgrade. So Jason. What do we actually recommend that people buy? You mentioned USB as a, as a good starting point, yeah. right? Yeah, there are lots of good USB microphones out there. I um, wrote a piece 
that was on Six Colors called a podcast studio for under $100. Because I was trying to figure out a way to get podcast recommendations out there and have it be a reasonable price. And the microphone that I've been recommending to people lately is the Audio-Technica ATR2100 USB. For ages, I was recommending the Blue Yeti. And I used a Blue Yeti for a long time. So did I. Many years. Yeah, but I what I've been convinced of now, because many of the people who's, you know, I edit podcasts that they're on, the problem is that the Yeti is not great at uh, rejecting room noise and echo. It's it's not. It's neat looking, it's it's sturdy, um, but it is it's actually very heavy and very large. Those are not necessarily assets and they do break too. I wouldn't say that they're super reliable, but um, they have a hardware mute button, which is their best feature. I love that about it, but they're not really great if you're in an echoey environment. And the fact is that I could use one for a long time because I wasn't in echoey environments with lots of background noise. And so I got, it got, I got away with it in a way that I think a lot of people can. So I'm generally recommending the Audio-Technica ATR2100 USB, uh, which is a weird microphone. It it looks like a handheld microphone. Um, As we record this, it's actually, you know, down to $64. Sometimes, I think the list is $79. It varies on places like Amazon. Um, In the U.S., I think in in the U.K., it's more expensive. There's some weird distributor thing where they, they crank up the price on it. But it, so it sounds good. It's be- much better keeping out echo and background noise. Um, it, it is, it's got some unique features that I like about it. It is a USB microphone that is shaped like a handheld microphone. So there's a headphone port on the bottom and a volume slider and a USB um, mini, I think, mini, mini USB port on the bottom of the microphone. So you can plug it in to your computer directly. It also has an XLR port on it. So if you're in a situation where you actually need to use a USB interface box with a microphone, you can plug it in to the USB interface box. It makes it versatile. It's one of the ways that I can get away with um, recording a podcast on an iPad or an iPhone is that both of them work at the same time. So if I bring an audio recorder attached via XLR, I can record my microphone while it's attached to an iOS device, which is a neat trick. It, it is an edge Ooh. case, but it is a it is a neat Ooh. a neat trick and it's a pretty good deal. So that's the one that I'm recommending right now is the ATR2100 USB. There are other options, there are a lot of good options, but I think given the price and the versatility and the size that this is uh, probably the best option. And while it doesn't have a mute button, it has an on-off switch that works as a mute button, basically, when you're using it. If you flip the switch off, then nobody can hear you. And then you flip the switch on and you come back. So that is a really great recommendation for if you're starting out. It's a really great recommendation for if you're looking for a USB microphone, which you should be when you're starting out. But when you're ready to make a jump up, um, I want to make a recommendation for a microphone that I really like a lot. Um, It is the Shure Beta 58A. It's like the the baby cousin of the 87A, which is a, an excellent microphone, but is more expensive. Um, the 58A, these are what we use whenever we do live stuff because they're, they're about $150, so they're not cheap. 
but they're nowhere near the price of our typical microphones. So if one got broken or something like that, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And it also makes it easier for us to really FM to own like four of them or whatever that Stephen will bring around in a lovely Pelican case. I think I've got four. There's also a knockoff that's the pile. And um, those cost like 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I've got two of those, and they sound really good. <laughs> they they they're knockoffs, which means I don't know. They might you they might be of variable quality, and they might break. My expectation is those those microphones are made in the same factory where the. I think yeah, I I suspect that they're the same product, and that the, mm-hmm. there is a company that when at night when they're not making sure betas, they're making the pile PDM whatever it is. We'll put a link in the show notes, but. Um, I have those too, and those are those are super cheap. And I have four real Sherbeta fifty eight A's, and then I have a couple of those pile mics. But honestly, they they all work, and they're, they're all mm-hmm. really good. And it's not as expensive as the better Sherbeta mic that Marco likes, but they're very good. They're a little bit pricey, but um, it is a good microphone. And if I was doing it's a really good step up, yeah, the, it is the step up pick now with the Sherbeta fifty eight A, which you know you and I own. <laughs> We, and Relay owns, we have many of these in our collections. Um, you do need a USB interface. And I will point out another story that I wrote on Six Colors, which is a review I did of low-cost USB audio interfaces. I actually went on Amazon and ordered like eight USB audio interfaces or something and reviewed them all and kept some and, and, and sent some back. Um, and there are a few that I can recommend. You may want to recommend one too. I don't know. But the ones that I like the best, Tascam makes one. It's called the 2x2. Two two. It's got inputs for I, two. I use that. I have one of those. I use it, and it's great. Yeah, and and most microphones will work with it just fine. Um, it is often available for 120 bucks right now. As we record, it's 150 bucks, but you can watch the prices there. They also make a one by two, which is 99 dollars uh, generally, and. I didn't review it, but it's probably quite similar. My only issue there is you lose some flexibility. One of the nice things about XLR is if you get a two-microphone box, it means you can get two microphones and do two-person podcasts or interviews or things, and that's awfully nice. But you could get a one-microphone box if you wanted. I also liked um, the Personas audio box, which is usually more expensive than the other options, which kind of knocks it down. Um, although it's 140 right now when I look at it. And the Mackie Onyx Blackjack 2x2, which is often cheaper. Um, when I reviewed it, it was 100 bucks, but now it's 200 bucks. So these all go kind of up and down, and they're all pretty good. They all have different like hardware layouts. Like A couple of them are very f- sort of all the controls are on the front. The Mackie Onyx Blackjack is more like a mixer, so it's got a bunch of knobs um, you plug the microphones into the back, and then it's got a bunch of knobs kind of at an angle. It's a, just a different kind of thing. So people can look at that article. Those three were all pretty good. The um, Focusrite Scarlets, I've heard people like. I, I tested them, and I thought they were really bad and had, like, interference problems and stuff. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, anyway, there are microphones. You can if you shop around and maybe you wait a little bit, you can probably find a microphone for or a, a USB box for around 100 bucks, maybe a little bit more. And then that's what you plug the uh, Sherbeta into. So I want to make a recommendation for a product, which is, again, it's, it's up on that scale a little bit. You'd be going a little bit higher. Um, it's kind of around the three to $400 range, which is the Zoom H6, which is a field recorder. Um, the reason I yeah. recommend the Zoom is... The Zoom's versatility is what makes it so it's amazing. amazing. You can use this thing. I mean, with a H6... 
you can get how many how many XLR inputs you get on the H6? Four, you, right? You get four plus that you can buy an adapter that makes it six. So that's kind of why it's called the six. <laughs> yeah, well, it's weird though because the way they do it is it can record six tracks, but by default it's sort mm-hmm. of like um, you can have four XLRs and then there's a little microphone attachment on the front that has like a left and right microphone, and the idea there mm-hmm. is that that's your six tracks. But you can pop that off, and they sell a two XLR add-on, and then you've got six. They also make a an H4. Which is is the same deal. It's 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 uh, fewer inputs, yep. but it, it does which the might very be a same good thing. idea. And it's a great product. And I, I was going to mention this too. It's funny that you put it in here because it it is one of those things where it is a weird product, and it gets overlooked when you're talking about USB interfaces because it's a portable recorder, right? Which I I want to recommend as a portable recorder. Like if you go around and you're recording podcasts, yeah. getting one of these uh, Zoom recorders, they record on an SD card. Um, and they have XLR inputs, so you just plug in, or, or a microphone. So they also come with their own microphone that you can just put in somebody's face. And this is what radio reporters use and all of that. But if you're doing live shows or if you're just interviewing people out in the world, um, it, you, you bring your microphones, your XLR microphone that you use for podcasting, and you bring it with you, and maybe you've got a spare as well. And you can do a you can do a, an interview anywhere, and the battery life is really good, and you can store a whole lot of audio on one of those little SD cards. Um, but I yep. think the reason you mentioned it, Mike, is that if you plug it in to your computer via USB, guess what? It becomes a USB audio interface. Yep. So you can record to it via SD card. You rec- can record with it via USB. You can record with it on battery power. You can record with it plugged in. Yep. Um, it is its versatility is incredible. And you know, it, this might be if if you're buying an XLR microphone, I really recommend taking a serious look at this because the Zoom's versatility means you only need to buy one product, and that yeah. product might last you in any situation you want to be in. Like I own a Zoom, and and we own uh, I own one, and Stephen owns one as well. Because if I'm traveling anywhere to do any type of show, it's always recorded on the Zoom because I know the Zoom is going to get it right. Every single time. Those things are amazing. Laptop running software that's recording and all that. Like the software could record wrong. The inputs could be wrong. When you when you have a dedicated recorder, um, all of the fear really goes away as long as it's got power or battery. It, it just, it, it's, it's not a problem. And it. It, the only thing is, I, I will say it is... It's a little bit weird in that, like, when you plug it in uh, to use it as an interface, you kind of you still have to like turn it on and say, "Please put this in USB audio mode" and all of that. So it's more fiddly than a regular it's a set up every time. Yeah, yeah. But it, sure. it is super versatile. The H6 again is one of those things that, like, I bought an H4, which is which is a lot cheaper. It's two hundred, um, and I really liked it. And then I realized I was doing podcasts with six people or more and that they made one that i could record six microphones and i bought more microphones and i bought the h6 and i sold off the h4 uh, because the h6 is about 350 bucks it's not cheap but it is so versatile and if you ever expect to leave your room and record podcasts out in the world or go on trips and talk to people like it is uh it is a spectacular piece of technology and i remember i was telling Stephen hackett this not too long ago I remember the first compact flash-based recorder that we got at Macworld. Um, it took like, I want to say, I don't think it was, maybe it was four AA's, four AA batteries, and you could record for about 40 minutes and then the batteries were dead. And the compact flash card could hold, you know, a couple hours and that was it. Today, with these Zoom recorders, if you put four AA batteries in these things, 
they'll go for like 12, 15, 20 hours. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a long time, a very long time. Um, and, and those SD cards will hold days of audio. So you could literally just keep recording things and never erase it. And it would be a long time before the card filled up. So the, it, it's pretty amazing how the tech has advanced on audio recording stuff. And it's some, it's worth keeping in mind, especially if you're not, um, if you're not recording podcasts on Skype, but you're just doing things in person with people, you don't even need a computer setup then. You need microphones and a recorder and do it that way. All right. Let's quickly blast through the software because I, I feel like I have less to say on the software sure. because it's too complicated to get into in detail. Um, we both use Logic Pro 10 for our editing. Um, I think we have both used GarageBand, GarageBand. That's yep. what you should start with. Um, but it gets to a certain point if you're dealing with lots of tracks so you've got lots of little clips that you want to put in that you need something that has a bit more versatility, a little bit more reliability, and that's when Logic steps in. But there is a huge learning curve yep. uh, for Logic. I recommend finding uh, one a company that has a course on it and, and taking a look at those courses. Uh, to try and help understand how to use it because mm-hmm. it is difficult because it's not made for podcasting. It's made for mu- for music creation. Yeah. So you kind of have to bend it to your will a little bit, but it is great. Um, we both use Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba um, as a way to record our audio coming in right now. Both me and Jason will be doing this where we are recording our local track and recording the Skype track independently. So we have those for backups and we have them in case we need them. Um, and I think... I know I do. I believe that you do. I use two different pieces of software to record my voice whenever I'm recording. So I have a, another backup. And uh, for me, Audio Hijack is my backup. But the recording that I will use is comes from Ecamm Core Recorder for Skype. This is like the software that's been around forever. Um, it will just record Skype calls for you. It has some little tools to help you export the audio into loads of different formats. And it's rock solid for me. Yeah. Um, and, and I love Ecamm. For me, Call Recorder is basically my backup because a lot of times... Yeah, I'm we do re- it in reverse. I, I'm recording in... Uh, like, Call Recorder records lossy and it's generally it doesn't matter. But I have a... I Or I have it set to lossy, but I ha- I'm recording like a wave, uh, just a completely lossless file on Audio Hijack. But either way, I have two. And the reason is that, you know... One is none and two is one, basically. that mm-hmm. I've, I've been fail. bitten by a, a hard crash where even though it was recording my audio to disk the whole time, the file was still unrecoverable. That's a QuickTime format problem that, I, that a call recorder has. Whereas if you're writing out a wave or an AIFF to disk, it's just the raw audio data and it can be recovered after a hard crash. So, so we do, mm-hmm. and we record each other on the Skype, coming from Skype as well on a separate track because what if one of us forgot to press record or loses their file in some way, you've got a backup and backups are uh, really important to podcasting because, uh, mistakes you happen. only get the audio the one even, time even know? the most we just <laughs> recently did a total party kill episode where one of the most experienced podcasters and podcast editors, uh, Erica Ensign, her computer, crashed or her or her audacity because she uses a pc she was recording an audacity and it crashed and they've got a crash recovery feature so she opens it up and said would you like to recover the file and she says yes and and nothing happened and so she lost her entire audio track so that episode those series of episodes um she's cut in from the backup because we had a backup of her over the internet and that's what we used so you know belt and suspenders 
And also, as the audio editor, um, you use the Skype track to help line up right. uh, with the track from the other Timing. person as well. It's very important. Mm-hmm. So you use that to line up uh, when everybody's talking, especially if you've got many people talking. Um, I also use very frequently another application from Rogamiba called Fission. Um, Fission, I use it for two different things. One, it is an incredibly fast and efficient uh, file format converter. So sometimes someone might send me an MP4 and I need a wave so I could do the editing that I want to do in the way that I want to do it. And Fission does a very good job of that. It also is, um, it will also allow you to edit MP3 files without re-encoding them. Typically, if you want to edit an MP3 file, an application will encode it into something else and then encode it back into MP3. So it's like a lossless MP3 editing application. So sometimes I've had this where like maybe there was a bit of silence at the end of a file and I don't want to open up Logic and edit it and bounce it again or something like that. So I can just open up Fission chop it out, save it, and it's done. And so I really like it for those two features. That vision is how Mike at the Movies uh, over on The Incomparable happens. Yeah. Is I t- Literally, I take the MP3 of Upgrade or Analog and strip out the rest of the show and leave the Mike at the Movies segment. And that way, I'm not re-encoding the MP3 or anything like that. I'm just pulling out the stuff that is not the Mike at the Movies, and then I resave it with new art, which it supports MP3 art and all of that. And uh, yeah. yeah, Rogue Amoeba has got a lot of great stuff. Um, and uh, they do have a bundle, too, if you want to get a bunch of this mm-hmm. stuff, including Farago, which is their soundboard app that's new, and Loopback, which is a uh, a great which utility yeah, that lets you create <laughs> sort of like virtual inputs and outputs and route, so- route sound between different apps in different ways. It's kind of hard to describe it. It's a feature that probably should be built into the OS, but it's not. And so Rogue Amoeba built it, and it's great. Yeah, it's wild that you can't do a better job with this stuff on macOS. I don't, yeah. So yeah. Uh, Rogue Amoeba had to come in and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I use uh, Adobe Audition. Um, I use Adobe Audition for uh, sound, like le- volume level matching. It has a great tool for this to match loudness is what it's called. So I will just drop all my tracks in there and I match it to the same level. So everybody's <laughs> audio is the same. Um I use this feature instead of compressors. This is just a thing that I do, um, and it works fantastically. It's an extremely expensive audio processing uh, and leveling utility that you're using because most people will just edit their entire podcast in Audition. I know a bunch of people who do that. Mm -hmm. It's also very good for that. Um, I don't because I've optimized myself, I feel like, with Logic to the point where I can't imagine that I would become faster. I can't bend my brain. I cannot bend my brain around compressors. I've never really understood them, and it doesn't matter how many times I try and learn. I just can't seem to get what I want. Um, this allows me to do it very quickly. It saves me time every single time I'm, I'm editing a show. I have a hard time with compressors too. And um, if there's a podcasting expert out there who wants to send in a great resource that simplifies how compressors work, I'd love to hear it because I have I've struggled with them a lot. I will say um, the, the compressor that I'm using now is not... I think a particularly good piece of software in that it seems really inefficient. Um, It crashes on iOS for me, but I am using it a lot and it's called Corv Presser, which is a super weird uh, name for a product from uh, Clevgrand, which is a uh, company in Sweden. What's good about it is that uh, its interface is like a tube. (laughs) It's really simple. Basically you you have an input uh, compression and an output level. And you just, you make those bigger or smaller and that's it. And 
that has been very useful to me in being like getting the sound I want, which because a compressor basically is another way to make it makes um, it can make loud sounds and and quiet sounds sound closer to each other. It reduces the dynamic range. And that's that's a way to match levels from people that is different from using audition, which is what what Mike uses. So I, I'm using core presser a little bit um, now to do it. But I, I, that's one thing that I want to, I want to be better at and, and do better kind of audio matching. Cause the last thing you want is for a loud person and a quiet person in a podcast. You want them all to sound the same level. Oh, and I should, I should mention forecast by Marco Armand who's starred in a lot of these things here. He built forecast and it's actually publicly available. And I think we both use that to encode MP3s and tag them yep. and do ch- our chapter markers. We mark in, in logic, we actually mark, uh, set markers and then you export the file as a wave which I like to do anyway because that gives me an uncompressed master file that I can save of like this is the master of the podcast and then I can encode mp3s off of that and I use forecast to do that it picks up those markers makes them into mp3 chapter markers automatically knows that this file is called the incomparable and puts the incomparable name on it and puts the art in it and all of that which is very convenient so that's a great app and mm-hmm. uh, and, and uses the eight cores on my iMac Pro to crank that thing out in no time I also mm-hmm. use Marco's uh, command line utility sidetrack to to uh, uh, to line up all my files. It's not available publicly. I hope one day he releases it publicly. I'd like a UI on it too. But uh, have a UI. We've talked about like getting another developer <laughs> to just secretly write a UI to the secret product. I hope it gets released sometime. But um, and I and the other thing that I use uh, is a bunch of things. A lot of them started with the stuff that Marco handed me actually, but it's a lot of shell scripts. Um, which seems super nerdy, and I'm going to make it nerdier by saying that I actually wrap them, uh, shell, shell scripts or Apple scripts, around an automator plugin. So now it's super nerdy. But here's the, the end result is that when I want to convert a file into a wave, I just select it in the finder and do like Command-Shift-W or Command-Option-W, and it makes a wave of that file. And what, it, what it's doing is these are automator, um, they're services plugins, so they're plugins for the finder, that run a script and I've got a bunch of them. I've got one that does sidetrack. I've got one that uh, generates waves. I've got one that extracts track one from a call recorder.mov file and outputs it as a wave so that you're getting, because call recorder will have two tracks, the person talking and the other side of the call. I only want the first track usually. So I've got a script that does that. And it's generally using FFmpeg in the command line to do that. And FFmpeg will talk to Lame if it needs to encode it as an MP3. Also, when I'm sending files off to a third-party editor, <laughs> to somebody like Jim Metzendorf or Erica Ensign or Stephen Schapansky, who are people who edit podcasts for me, um, I don't want to send them giant wave files so i have a a finder script that basically uses ffmpeg and lame to generate a high bitrate mp3 which is a much smaller file and then i just instead of encoding them manually i just use that script and it does it in the background in the finder and then i drag those files into dropbox and they get the file so there's a bunch of stuff that is um you know it's super nerdy but at the same time it's incredibly useful i just had to set it up myself because fortunately the finder lets you do that um, lets you have these kind of like automation plugins that in the end just feel like features of the finder that I wrote, I guess, but that that was a it was worth the a little bit of effort to figure out what the command should be in order to get the result, which is that it it saves me a lot of time in processing files in in the finder. And speaking of which, before we go, um, I wanted to talk, this wasn't even in our outline originally, but I think it's worth at least talking about briefly how we do our workflow. Like how does how does a show get made when two shows love each other very much? How does a show get made? Um, 
and it has to do with like um uh, like files especially this big audio file so for me um I, I'll I'll go first here. For me, you know, I get the recordings from whoever I'm I'm doing, and then I will uh, convert them all to to wave. I will uh, use sidetrack on them to get them to align. Um, I'll use Isotope RX6, which is a product we didn't mention, which is like magic audio processor. There are a bunch of versions, some of which are very expensive and some of which are cheap. I use their spectral denoise plugin to remove background noise from everybody's tracks if people are in loud environments with air conditioners or heaters or water heaters or whatever. Uh, removes hums. I can actually remove room echo with their D-Reverb plugin, which is amazing. And so I use that to process those files too. And then I get them all into Logic. And the other thing I'll say is I, I have a full, I have a zip file for each of my podcasts that I edit. Uh, this is the one that CGP Grey discovered that I did this. And he's like, that's a great idea. And I think he does this now. I, I, I basically made a generic project for each of my podcasts that's got like the files where they need to be, the, the music, the music's in the Logic project. And then I just quit out of that generic file uh, template and I zip that folder. And I keep it as a template zip on my desktop. So I'll double click on incomparable and it'll unlock, it'll open an incomparable folder. And then that I'll drag the files in there, sync them, denoise them and all of that. And if I'm editing it right away, I'll edit it right away and then file it on my, on my Drobo in a folder for, um, for whatever podcast it is. If I'm not editing it right away, I have a different folder that's called works in progress and, and it goes in there so that I and that gets backed up and and all of that so that I've got access to um, that stuff and it's also kind of like a reminder to me that these are still in process these are still not these are still pending and then for my really timely podcast I have a on on my server I have a hazel script that fires that will delete projects after um, some period of time so like if I if I'm doing uh, like download I edit um, after two months the download projects get thrown away because I, I don't need all the master tracks for a timely news-based podcast. Whereas the incomparable, I keep forever. Yeah, I don't really have a ton to say on this. I don't have anything smart going on, right? Like I have a similar thing with you where I have Hazel dumping out the projects. How long do you keep your projects? <sighs> like a couple of months. I right. don't remember the exact amount of time, right. but not even that. You know, um, the only uh, logic files that I keep are Cortex, and they're just stored in Dropbox. All right. Um, because we we actually passed the show backwards and forwards in Dropbox during our product project editing, mm-hmm. so they're already there. So it's just a case of selective syncing them away from our machines, which we do. Um, I actually have a folder that I put past projects into on the Dropbox website, and then they just disappear from both mine and Greg's machines because we selective sync that okay. folder away. Makes um, and because I have a I have a terabyte of Dropbox space, which I'm never going to use, right. it will just serve as a as a place to store our files for the time being. And then I have uh, I have Backblaze pointed at that, right? So it's backing that up. But for basically every single one of my shows that I that I am editing, I don't really need to keep the logic files for them. Um, honestly, like you never need re-editing or anything right. like that because they're by and large weekly. Um, news-based shows. If I ever need a clip from them, I'll just grab a clip from the from MP3. The MP3 like yeah. it, it, it's going to be absolutely fine. Makes sense. So I don't really have anything like I don't have like a server. I haven't got all this stuff because by and large, every show that I edit is published as soon as it can possibly be. So like there there isn't a case of like banking stuff or whatever. But if I ever do have to bank anything for a trip, I just put it in Dropbox, so it's accessible everywhere and it's backed up. And it's versioned on Dropbox and all that kind of stuff. It works well for me. Sounds good. All right, let's take our second break and thank 
Simple contacts for their support of this show. It is so fantastic when an app can take a tiresome task and make it easy for you. And that's what Simple Contacts does when it comes to renewing your contact lens prescription. You can reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes, either from the Simple Contacts app or from their website as well. All you need to do is complete their online self-guided vision test in less than five minutes from wherever you are right now. No more need for doctor's offices or sitting around wasting your day in waiting rooms. It is the summertime and and there are plenty of occasions that you might want to have some contact lenses on hand. Maybe you're going to spend the day at the beach. You don't want to lose your glasses in the surf. Maybe you just want to take a vacation and you want to be able to wear some sunglasses, right? You don't have prescription sunglasses. Well, contact lenses can help you out. Maybe there's a wedding coming up. Who knows? You might want contact lenses for that. So why not pick up Simple Contacts to stock up for the season? You can order your favorite contacts right now from their website or app. They offer all the lens brands that you love with options for astigmatism, multifocal, lenses, colored lenses, and more. You can order exactly what you need right from the palm of your hand whenever or wherever you want. Their vision test is just $20. For comparison, an appointment without insurance could cost you over $200. Simple Contacts saves you money and time. But just to let you know, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Simple Contacts will check that your current prescription still helps you see 2020 and will renew your lenses based on that prescription. They are not writing a completely new prescription or examining your eye health. I was blown away by how simple and fantastically fun, in a weird way, the uh, simple contacts vision test is to be able to just put your phone down on a table and walk away from it and do the vision test is wild. It makes you feel like you're from the future. And then once you've completed it, I'm sure that like me, you will be astounded at just how many options they have available. No matter what type of contact lenses you got, they've got them. Hey, why not even buy some colored lenses and do something fun? You know, you never know. Maybe for a fancy dress costume. Who knows? Simple contacts have got you covered. As a listener of this show, you can get $20 off your contact lenses. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash ahoy20 or you can enter ahoy20 at checkout. That is simplecontacts.com slash ahoy20 or simply use the code ahoy, A-H-O-Y-2-0 for $20 off. Our thanks to Simple Contacts for their support of this show. Should we talk about money? Money, money, money. Mm, yeah, let's do. Oh, yeah, baby, let's talk. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Why not? We should. Because this is something I think like we have to talk about the practicalities of monetization. I think that that is an important thing to talk about. And as we know, monetization about. is what happens when a wizard appears and taps his magic wand and turns a person and into a bag of money. money. Yeah. So there are many ways. There are a handful of ways uh, that you can make money uh, doing a podcast. But uh, before I talk about any of my opinions on any of these things, let me let me talk to you about the realness of this for a second. If you are starting out a show or you're early on in a show, please don't do that podcast just for the idea that you're going to make money or that you want to make money. Because the thing is, this might feel like a small industry, but it's not. It, it wasn't five years ago, and it's certainly not now. There are, there is, and there will always be more people looking to get sponsors on their shows than there will be sponsors because those things just grow at the same time. Yes, there are more companies sponsoring now, but there are more shows with vaster audiences with larger uh, requirements for budgets and stuff. So the 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 economy of our industry has remained mostly the same, even though things are boosting. You know, like you know, you're seeing numbers like oh, this amount of hundreds of millions spent every year, but. It's working in scale as it has been for the last few years. So all of this is to say it's really hard to get uh, a sponsor on your show. And it's really hard 
to get those relationships, keep those relationships, and make it something that's worthwhile for you. So please don't assume that just by starting a podcast, you'll make it big and you're going to make money. One thing we're not going to talk about today is how to grow audiences. And the reason for that is, who knows? Yeah. It's really hard. No, and I have no I have no real tips for you. Yeah. You know, the tip that I'll give, which is the same that I'll always give, which no one ever wants to hear, is keep doing it. Keep showing up and keep doing it because you'll learn and you'll get better over time. And the better you get, the more likely you'll be. And honestly, one of the things is most people give up. So if you keep going, you have a better chance. Your odds increase because most people give up. So if you just don't give up, that's how I, you know, that's how I did it. I was recording yeah. shows for many years and no one cared. I just didn't give up. And it's not a guarantee that not giving up will will make you able to to make a living doing podcasting. There's no guarantee there. But or make any money. But if you don't give up, up you at least you know you can't win if you don't play, right? And and it's so yeah. true that so many times. You know, we see these announcements about like I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing this podcast, and the fact is, most of the time it doesn't it doesn't stick. Like this, it just doesn't stick. So, being consistent, part of being consistent, we always say be consistent, is to keep doing it. <laughs> like every week, same time, keep going. So when when shall I get sponsors? This is the thing that people ask me all the time. When when shall I get sponsors? Like. <sighs> first question you know like how long should your show be around for i think that you should have a show have a little bit of a history before you try and grab some sponsors in even if you've got lots of downloads you know people say how many downloads should you have i mean this number changes a lot i mean i find that to try and go in cold to a company now of any kind of size you're probably looking at the 15 to 20,000 downloads per episode um this is, you can get sponsorship on shows that are smaller than that, but if you're going in on your own and that's, you know, you have just have this one show and it has that amount of money, uh, those amounts of downloads, you know, that that's going to make people turn their head. If you go in and say, I have 8,000 downloads, which is an incredible number to have, but it's hard for a sponsor to just to commit the time required for, for the return that they would get on that one. You need to have a larger audience to go in and do this kind of thing on your own even if you have those numbers and again those numbers are not hard and fast that's just from my personal experience of 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 doing this stuff um for the last five years or whatever uh, at a serious scale um in regards to how long your show should be around i think that it's important that it is likely that you will have established a relationship with your listeners. And this can take a little bit of time. That time varies show to show. And the reason I say this is because my personal theory is that people only uh, support shows with coupon codes and stuff like that, support the sponsors of shows, of shows that they like, of shows that they think fondly about. And that comes with having a relationship with the listener. And that usually comes with a thing over time. You know, you'll know this as a podcast listener, uh, you hear similar sponsors on many shows. So you have to, when it comes to you buying your product from Acme sponsor, you will probably enter the promo code of the show that you feel most fondly for. Um, so I, I think it's important that you have given time for your show to really build a relationship with the audience before you try and pursue this route. Um, but yeah, the downloads thing, uh, it's difficult. It changes a lot. It can, can be less. It can be yeah. more. It really depends on the companies that you're going to. It can be difficult. Well, and the scale, as podcasting has grown, the scale has changed too. Like there, there was a, yes. a podcast ad company that I worked with for a long time. And when I started with them, like they were they were saying, you know, they wanted shows in the 20,000 and up range or 25,000 and up range for listeners. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, now I feel like they're only really focused on shows that are 75, 100,000 and up from there Mm -hmm. because there's money to be made there. And there are now podcasts that are that large. And so, um, because I, I hear this from people who are like, oh, you know, my podcast, I'm going to start it. And when can I make money? And first off, like you said, that's probably not the right approach to, you know, make something you about something you love and be excited about it uh, is probably the way you should start. Yes. And then beyond that, like, it is a challenge. Like, you you do it for a few months and you think, well, look, I've got 3,000 downloads. So now I should be able to bring in the money. And it's like, probably not. Like... It takes time and it takes a lot of audience growth. Unless you've got a super niche to- topic where there are, audi- there are you know advertisers falling over themselves to reach those people, you know those plumbers or whatever it is, very specific. Unless it's that, then then um, that's not going to be good enough either. So it's 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 hard. So this is you know then people say to me, should I be part of a network? And and being part of a network can help because networks have an overall larger reach than single shows, right? So you can take 10 shows that have 10,000 downloads and you have 100,000 and you can spread it across and that can help kind of the buying power um, or the selling power. But it's not 100% necessary. Networks cannot guarantee you any growth. They mostly will not guarantee you any money, right? Like you're mostly still in the same situation and being part of a network, you will gain some things and you'll lose some things. And, And depending on who you're working with, depending on how you are as a person, this is not a hard and fast rule. Also, being a part of a network, an established network, is not an easy thing. I can guarantee to you every single podcast network that exists gets more pitches than they can process. Um, and, and a lot of these are just people that are, I believe, straight up just Googling the term podcast network and sending an email to all of them because I get those pitches. I, I, I get pitches from people that I know of. I have no idea who Relay FM is. Um, we also get a lot of pitches. If you're ever going to pitch a podcast network, have a show that already exists first. Right. Prove that you can do this without the requirement of being part of the network. That is that is my advice to you aspiring podcasters. Don't pitch and just be like, I want to make this show. Can you help me make this show? Because I don't think really, unless you have a very large existing audience of your own in some other avenue, I don't think any podcast network can necessarily find that to be appealing. What you need to do is to show, I have an idea, I can execute on that idea and I'm reliable. Um, and then also, you know, we, we always ask for demos as well that's the thing that i always ask for because i want to know what the show's going to be like before we would ever even begin to consider uh, adding a show to our roster and we ask for demos from friends like if jason came to me tomorrow and said i have an idea for a new show i would ask him to make a demo of it because that's just how we work now because we want to make sure that the show has the right sound to it we did that with download and download had one of the co-founders of the network on yeah we did that with liftoff too liftoff was uh yep. was a a b-side that was basically the pilot for liftoff and that's mm-hmm. that's how that happened too but yeah there is there is an unaired episode of download that was done about 3 months before download launched that's got like i think yasmin and and uh christina warren on it and um that was that was our proof of concept to not only to show that here's what the show would be to relay, um, but also for us to have that moment of like, what do we, you know, what, what do we want to do here? Is this, is this right? And it was very useful to do that. 
Clockwise, we did two. It also helped you combat episode one disease, which is a thing that many podcasts suffer from, which is where the first 45 minutes of the first episode of your show is introducing what the show is. And there's like all that awkwardness and stuff like that. And so trying to iron some of that out before episode one is also a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a tip for you. Um, so the other way to make money is crowdfunding. I, I don't really have a lot of experience with this. Um, I know Patreon can be successful, but honestly seems like it is as hard as it is with podcast sponsorship uh, to be successful. But the difference is you can make a little money on Patreon way easier than you can make a little money with sponsorship. Because a show that has 500 listeners could get 10 of those people to kick in $5 every month and you've made a little bit of money. So that can be a good thing to do. Um, We roll our own of a membership system with Memberful. Uh, The Incomparable does the same. I only recommend rolling your own when you're at a scale already that exists. You may may as well just use something like Patreon. Um, And of course, Kickstarter is an option, uh, but that kind of only really works if you're coming from something first where you can have an audience of people that you can point to the kickstarter campaign so i've got a little experience with this which is to say i think for small podcasts that have small but fervent audiences that crowdfunding or member you know direct support in some form is the way to go because when you look at what in the ad business they call cpms which is the cost per thousand so if you've got a five thousand person podcast then it's like how many dollars for that five thousand? So if you've got a ten dollar CPM per thousand, that's a fifty dollar ad that you're running on your podcast. Woo! We're making fifty dollars a week now. That's not nothing. It's also not a lot. That's beer money, basically. And what I realized with a lot of the incomparable podcasts, like Total Party Kill and Game Show, are good examples of that. We don't have huge audiences. But they're really enthusiastic. And so we did a membership system. And I will tell you, those podcasts make way more money from direct support from people who listen than they than they were ever going to make from, from ads. Plus, it allowed me to sort of like get us phased out of the ad business because occasionally we'd have our schedules get all messed up because, oh, an ad came in this week. We have to drop an episode this week and I've got to insert this ad into it and it's for 70 bucks or something like that. It's just like it wasn't, it was totally not worth it. It made the show worse. And there was an audience that was really enthusiastic about it who was willing to give money to support it. So... I do think that that is, if you, again, don't jump the gun here, but if you build up an enthusiastic audience and it doesn't turn into a huge hit, this stuff, I think, is a way better source than kind of like holding out for a a very cheap, crappy ad. Because, you know, ads, ads and podcasting are great. We have them here. It's what pays our salaries. But for small podcasts, it's not always the right approach. No, and you're completely right. Don't launch episode one with your Patreon campaign. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if it's a Kickstarter, it's the same idea, right? Like, have something established already that that you've proven and have a proven audience for if it's a new season of your podcast via Kickstarter. Have something to go first that that people can can bank on and they trust you and they're enthusiastic about what you're doing and then they're going to give you money. Let's go to our hashtag AskUpgrade questions. Uh, We have got lots of these. We've been getting lots of these uh, for quite some time since we started talking about this stuff. Um, So let's start trying to knock through some of these. First question comes from Steve. I'd love to hear about how you structure your podcast and share notes as you're recording. Can I take this one? Yep. Because this is something I care about a lot, a lot. Um, Preparation, I believe, is one of, if not the most important thing into making a good podcast. No matter what 
type of show you do, I believe some form of preparation is imperative to it. So for all the shows that I do, by and large, I have outlines. And these outlines detail all of the topics we're going to talk about. Uh, And I also write a lot of my notes in. Some of them are written as I'm going to say them. Like uh, that, that line, and I also write a lot of my notes in, I just read that from the outline because I wrote it earlier today. Because there are some things where it's like, I know I want to say something in a specific way, and it will help me talk about it, and it will give me prompts to then kind of talk a bit more extemporaneously. I put all of that stuff in because I believe that the show, then the shows that I do, are more than just the time I'm sitting in front of them. It's like all of the time that I spend thinking about the show, I want to have all of my thoughts and notes detailed out, so I'm able to go over them in my head before the show, so I'm writing them all out. It means I'm more likely to remember them, and it also means I can refer to them when I need to and I can keep track of what we're doing. I can keep track of where we are in the show, what we have left. I can estimate time. It helps me make sure that I can cover everything that I need. And that that kind of heavy outlining, I think, is important for the types of shows that I mostly do, which are information-based and news-informed in a lot of instances, topic-based, that kind of thing. Um, you know, there are some shows where like, you want to have the entire thing written out beforehand because it's a performance more than a conversation. Um, And there are some shows where you might just want to have five bullet points of things you want to talk about. But preparing for a show, making sure that you know kind of what are the things you want to talk about, leaving some room to to go off into the weeds where you need to and to allow you to think on your feet where you want to. But I believe that preparation is so important because people are giving you their time. They are saying, I'm going to press play on this thing and I want to be entertained. Respect them by having done some work beforehand to make sure that you feel that before you sit down in front of the microphone that you've done everything you can to make sure that your show is going to be as good as it can be. So for this show and for many shows, uh, we have a Google Doc that is completed before the show begins. Um, and we're both in there changing and amending things on the fly. I've been moving stuff around, and we do that quite a lot. Jason's writing me little messages in the <laughs> Google Doc right now. Google Docs is the best for this because their collaboration features are um, nobody is even close to them um, in in being able to do this. Uh, I cannot record without a doc now. Like I I love it. Uh, it works for me so well. Uh, I think it's very important to have something like this. Yeah, in uh, with download we have a. Uh, a rundown that we actually share with our guests, which is a Google Sheet that's got links to the stories we're going to talk about, which is cribbed from how Leo Laporte does all of his shows, where there's a giant document. The difference is that we will trim it down to like three stories, whereas the Twit Sheet has like 80 stories in it. And then they just sort of feel their way. We pick beforehand and we we, we limit it to three or four stories. And then we actually have a script that we work on that is uh, more of what I'm going to say to introduce each of the segments. And that changes from week to week. And we go back and forth with that. Stephen and I, we're both working on that. So there's prep. I mean, I don't prep for uh, the incomparable this way because with the incomparable, a lot of the prep is literally watching the movie or reading the book. Um, And I will take notes sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I'll think in advance about sort of like the ways I want it to go, but I kind of want it to be a free flowing conversation, but for something like liftoff or, free agents or you know any of the other podcasts that i've done there's uh there's a document it's generally a shared google doc that it has everything in it that we're going to discuss and again it's not a script it's we're not reading words off a script when we do it but we are uh, making sure that there are points we want to hit and that we that we cover them and then we know when to move along to the next thing so chris asked uh about podcast hosting 
services, which we use, any tips that we have, um, preferably without a huge investment. I'll tell you, podcast hosting is cheaper than you think it is. Yeah. Um, this was one of the things that was really surprising to me. Podcast hosting, I mean, you can get it for dollars a month, like very small amounts of money and still get pretty good um, pretty good services, pretty good bang for your buck. And there are a few different companies out there. Um, and I kind of wanted to just give a real brief overview um, of the ones that exist. So like, for example, Libsyn is the company that I mostly use for all of our show hosting. They have a, a plan that starts at $5 a month, you know, and then they go all the way up to $75. They have a bunch of different plans. I would say their $20 a month plan is the best plan. It gets you lots of statistics. And for a show that's publishing weekly, you get 400 megabytes a month that you can upload. Um, and that does a really good job for us. Uh, Libsyn are rock solid. They have been around uh for as long as podcasting has existed. Um, they Their statistics are industry acknowledged. They've gone through some changes recently, so uh, they could have been a little bit better communicated, but that's just an axe I have to grind. Um, but they're making their system even more accurate to a standard that's been created. There's like a body that's come together to try and help companies um, align their statistics because statistics measuring is, is very difficult in podcasts because... It's one of the things that makes the industry great that like there's no data that is widely available. It's just kind of like measuring pings to a file and a feed, right? It can be really difficult to accurately measure. And now a bunch of companies are coming together to try and create an industry accepted standard. Um, Libsyn's design of their system is very bad. That like their visual design and their UI is not nice to look at. Um, I know lots of people, including Jason who uses Libsyn's FTP uploading so he does not have to deal with this system. It, it could do with some love in a lot of areas, I think. Yeah, it's it's not it's not perfect, but it's a good it's a good deal. And the other thing is they provide a uh, blog style interface at, at Libsyn, which means if you don't want to set up your own website for your podcast, you don't have to. You can use their blog and point people at that, and it'll have a list of your episodes with show notes and all of that. But you can also not use their blog system and have your own site somewhere. And like Relay and The Incomparable, like we we have shows at Libsyn, but we have Relay.fm and TheIncomparable.com. And so you can do that too. I have a friend who does a Libsyn-hosted podcast and they have a WordPress site for it. And that works fine. They can do it that way too. And you can use you can use their RSS feed or you cannot use their RSS feed if you want. So you can kind of pick and choose. But they do offer, it is full service. Like they have, they will give you a website and an RSS feed for your podcast that will go to iTunes and all of that. And, uh, and hosting the files all in one package for a pretty good deal. So yeah, that's why we use them. My recommendation is if you have a website of your own and you need someone to host the file for you and you're going to generate your own RSS feed that people subscribe to, then Libsyn should be who you use. If you want to have a company also provide the website and RSS for you, I, I recommend using Simplecast because their design overall is way better looking. It's, it's way more modern. They're, uh, they have really good looking web pages um, and it, the websites that it generates are much, much nicer. They do a great job here. Uh, their system is simpler, hence the name, um, but has most of what you want. It has good statistics and stuff like that, but it's it's not as powerful and as tried and true as Libsyn, but their overall design chops are way better. Um, 
so they're also fairly priced. I will recommend or I will suggest I will highlight Anchor here. Anchor have been a sponsor of Relay FM, so I'm going to mention that up front. But we put our money where our mouth is. We host Subnet, which is Stephen Hackett's daily tech news show that's hosted with with Anchor. Um, they have free unlimited storage right now. Uh, I don't really know completely what their monetization scheme will end up being, but right now they are free. Their storage, they have analytics, they have free tools, their iPhone apps are very good, and they have great distribution. They will distribute you to Spotify and smart speakers and stuff like that. Um, but Anchor are more new in this space, and they're kind of building out tools, and the podcast hosting goes along with that. Um, as I say, I have used all of these, and I think that they all have their merits, um, and that they all have areas where they could improve. Uh, I think that really it just comes down to your preferences, what you're looking for. You know, do you want nice design? Do you want to pay nothing? Uh, do you want people with a lot of experience? They're kind of the, I think we stacked up how these companies work and you should choose what you want based upon your priorities. And I should say there are, um, if you've got a server, uh, which a lot of people do have. I mean, it's not a. It's not like everybody's got a server, but people listening to this show, you may have a server with, um, again, a, a sometimes sponsor, a Linode is a good example, but there are a bunch out there where you may be paying to have a Linux server somewhere in the cloud. Um, you may have a lot of uh, network transfer that you get every month that you're not using. And yes, you could host your files yourself. Uh, if your podcast becomes wildly popular, you will that will become a problem quickly but uh for small podcasts if you've got that space that disk space and network transfer space free on an existing server that you control you could do that that's actually what a lot of the shows on the incomparable are doing and that's actually kind of how the incomparable started is that my friend greg noss had uh had a, a linode server with a bunch of extra transfer and and we were for a little while able to serve everything off of that eventually we moved and now a bunch of shows the, the bigger shows are on libsyn but um, the smaller stuff is still on the linode um you have to build your own rss feed but you, if you use wordpress you can set up a wordpress blog with like the podpress plugin i think and then you just kind of put in where the file is and it generates rss there are, so there are lots of ways to do it you can you but i wanted to throw that out there that you may not even have to pay anybody to serve your files for you if you're somebody who's already got a file server on the internet that's got enough bandwidth and transfer uh, transfer time in order to uh, serve those files. So something out there for people who might be nerdy enough to have their own server. All right. So next up, uh, we have a question from Jonathan. Jonathan wants to know, how do you optimize a podcast for different podcast apps like show notes? Links are supported in Overcast, but not in Apple Podcasts, for example. Um, I don't see this as our responsibility. Yeah. Uh, we publish things to the accepted standards of the RSS feeds for podcasts. Um, and then it's up to the podcast apps to how they want to interpret that. Yeah. You know, we have an RSS feed of all of our links in um, and all third party players show it well, but it seems like some uh, apps from large companies, they don't want to do that. I don't understand why. I think it's because most large shows don't have detailed show notes like we do that this is show notes are a very like, the ye olde podcast mentality, <laughs> right? right? Um, so you'll get a lot of third-party apps using them because they're made by wonderful tech nerds who've been around for a long time. Um, but a lot of larger apps, larger companies, this is not just that this isn't a thing on their radar because a lot of the, the, the shows that they're looking to target mostly just don't really do this other than just like a description. 
So I don't do anything specific. We make sure that they that they look good and that they work. After that, we set it and forget it. Yep. Um, and that we you know we publish our shows in the same way with the notes as we will always do in our RSS feeds, and then how they're displayed is kind of up to the app developer. Yeah, I mean, we're it's literally HTML, so we're literally putting hyperlinks in there. Yeah. And Apple Podcasts chooses not to render them; they discard them. And that's used to. Their, used to. I don't know. That's, but it's not, you know, if, if I'll put it this way, if somebody came to me and said, oh, actually I figured it out. If you change your feed here and then they will also show up in Apple podcasts, of course we would do that, but there is a limit to what we're able to support technically. And it's up to the app developer. And so they made a change and that's just how it is. And, and you know, that that's, but you do react like, I mean, chapters is a good example where. Um, more apps had chapter support and we were more motivated to put chapters in. You can go back to the upgrade archive and find the episodes where we say we're never going to do chapters and now the episodes have chapters and that's because the tools have improved and the coverage among our listenership has improved in terms of who's using apps with chapters in them. Um, But at the same time, you know, like Apple podcast doesn't support it. So, oh, well, like it's just not in there and uh, we move on. There's only so much we can do. Rob wants to know if we have opinions of services like Cast or Zencaster. Uh, Rob's starting a podcast with a couple of friends and wanted to sound better than Skype. What do you think? I've got two things here. First off, Skype is in large part just a transport medium. You could literally record a podcast with your friends on a conference call on your iPhones because ideally what the people are going to hear at the end is a recording from everybody's microphone locally. That's how we make these podcasts. That's what you want to do. Is that yeah. it's everybody? It sounds like everybody's in the same room because we're literally recording ourselves in our rooms and then putting those together. And the use of technology so that we can hear each other and react to one another is just ideally just like a phone call, and and you don't use that audio at all. Now sometimes that happens, and that's why you've got a backup recording, like we said earlier. So Skype is not really ideally relevant here you just need to pick something that works for you and it could be the phone it could be skype it could be discord it could be slack it could be facetime it could be whatever you want it to be a google hangout Um, but ideally you'd record your own microphone locally and use those as the source and then just record your kind of conversation as a backup ideally cast and zencaster are apps that work in chrome they don't work in safari for various reasons involving standards that safari does still doesn't support even though they sort of do but they sort of don't not enough for these apps to use them Um, but you can download chrome and use them and what they do is um, they provide a uh, audio so you can have that conversation and they use the browser to record your local audio for you and automatically upload it to the server. So I use Cast every week for TV Talk Machine because Tim Goodman is never going to record his own microphone successfully and save it and send me the file in a timely fashion. <laughs> it's never going to happen. Like, I know it. He's He knows it. It's just it's never going to happen. So for the first few episodes... Um, it was just a Skype recording. And then I started using Cast and like, it works great. It records him locally on his computer and uploads the file in the background to me. And Zencaster does the same thing. I'd actually say, if you want to try this and you've only got one or two people, I, I think there's a free tier for Zencaster where you can have two or three people on a conversation. It's worth doing. Above that, you got to pay. And on Cast, you've got to pay. So you can look into it. But I think they're great if everybody's got a computer with, um, with Chrome 
on it. The the I will say the more people you get, the the worse it gets. Because as much as we complain about Skype, the thing about Skype is Skype is a service that's built to be resilient. It does a lot of things. You know, you send your files up, and then Skype is sending a mixed down version of the audio of the whole call just to you. Whereas something that's using a browser, everybody's downloading a bunch of different audio streams separately, which is more bandwidth intensive. So you, if you've got five or six people on a call, things start to fall apart really fast, especially if somebody's got a, cl- a, a, a a bad connection. Also, Skype does a lot of processing. They take out background noise. They level the audio volumes of everybody. So when I talk to Tim on cast, I can hear he's quiet and I can hear a lot of background noise that that I never hear when I talk to him on Skype. Now, it's there on the recording and I have to take care of it, but Skype can actually be a more pleasant conversation if you've got a large group of people because it's trying very hard to make it audible um, behind the scenes. So in the, sh- the short version yeah, is... Please it, try your best to not use the Skype call. Exactly. Though, right, like as to what you released to the you, world. You should, you should never do that. It's It should be a backup. But uh, sometimes it happens. Sometimes I have somebody who has to call in on an iPhone or something. It's like they can't record on their iPhone. So we'll we'll make it work. But it's not ideal. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you've got people who are tech savvy enough to record their own microphone and put it in a Dropbox file or something like that afterward, you don't you don't have to use Cast or Zencaster. You can just use Skype because the end result is not going to be or Discord or whatever because you're not going to use that audio. You're going to use the audio that you record yourself. If they're less technical and you're worried about it, I would say, yeah, use Caster Zencaster because you're going to get their audio file without them doing anything, which is brilliant, right? With these limitations that it doesn't sound as good and you can't have a lot of people on the call. Um, I would say you should still probably use something like Audio Hijack to record both yourself and them just in case something happens. Because that's happened to me with TVTM where I've had a browser crash and the file got lost. But I was using Audio Hijack as my backup, and so I still had it. So that is, you should always do the belt and suspenders thing. But I think those apps are great, and I especially think they're great if you've got guests or co-hosts who are less technical, and and you know they're just not going to do all the steps that you need. Um, If you've got guests a lot, I think it's totally worth it. Like, that's the best thing ever. You've got a new guest every week. Rather than trying to walk them through how to record, you can do that. I recommend podcastguestguide.com, which Anthony Johnston put together. It's got step-by-step instructions about how to get your guest to record their audio and then send it to you. It's great. But if you have a low confidence in your guest being able to do that, in these browsers, they literally just click, click a link and suddenly you're talking and you press a button and suddenly everything is getting recorded and uploaded to their to the uh, to the server of the of the service that you're using. It's brilliant. So um, those are your options. You got lots of options. All right, final break. We're going into the home stretch. Whew. Jason, Corey asked that you have spoken about using Ferrite a bunch for portable podcasting yeah. on iOS, but it seems that it's still impossible to podcast using iOS only. Are you still using Ferrite, and do you have any tips on portable podcasting? I'm still using Ferrite. I love Ferrite. It is the best deal. It is the best value in audio editing, especially podcast editing that exists. I actually had a, a friend say, all right, I'm getting frustrated with Audacity um, or GarageBand. I've had a few people say this. Um, what do you think about where I go from here? And it's like, wow, there's logic, which costs a lot of money and audition costs a lot of money. And I said, well, do you have an, a recent iPad? <laughs> and do you like your iPad? Cause you could get Ferrite for 20 bucks and it does it all. Um, it's a great deal. You've got to have, you know, a relatively recent iPad, although it's, it, it work on the iPhone too. Um, 
I, so I love it. I think it's a fantastic piece of software. I would love to have it on the Mac because I, I, it does everything I need it to do. Um, whereas Logic does everything I need it to do and like 10,000 other things that I don't need it to do that sometimes I press the wrong key and it does that and I don't know what to do because I don't know what mode I'm in now and it's really weird. So um, I love it. Impossible to podcast using iOS only? It's not impossible, but it's hard. That's the problem because Apple has not put a lot of sound stuff. We, we, we talk about Audio Hijack and Loopback bringing features to the Mac that it probably should have. iOS has got nothing. You can't, the, um, Rogue Amoeba can't write an app to bridge the gap on iOS because apps aren't allowed access to the audio stuff. Um, and so until that changes, which maybe, I don't know if it'll ever happen at this point, I'm kind of beaten down about whether they're ever going to ask, add more sound access to apps in iOS. But until then you got to jump through hoops. So there are a bunch of different ways to do it. Like the most common way to do podcasting on iOS is, and, and, and you risk, if everybody's on iOS, you really risk not having a backup. But if you've got some people on the Mac and some people on iOS or, or Mac or PC, you can have somebody record the whole call. That's your backup. That's your emergency backup. And like, if you're on iOS, well, you just need to record your microphone using a device. It could use that Zoom recorder. You could use an iPad. When we do upgrade, when I'm traveling, I'm doing that on iOS. And what I'm doing is I'm recording my microphone proper with a Zoom recorder or with my iPad. And then I'm on Skype on my iPhone. <laughs> and, and then I send Mike the file that I recorded on my iPad or the Zoom recorder and he uses that. And I've done podcasts entirely on iOS where we've recorded using a Zoom recorder or people have sent me their files and I've recorded locally on one while talking on the other. Um, or with that Audio-Technica microphone, I actually have had it where I'm recording via the XLR cable onto a Zoom recorder while talking via USB on my iPhone. Um, and that works too. So there's file transfer issues with getting things off of a card. I wrote a piece at Six Colors about this. I have this box that you basically plug the, the card into, the SD card, and then it's a Wi-Fi hotspot, and then you connect your iPad to it and download the file. That's annoying, but it works because Apple won't let you plug that card into an iPad or iPhone and see audio files on it, only pictures and movies. So um, it's great. I, I recommend it, and iOS podcasting is doable, but it's a pain. Uh, it's totally doable, but I wish it was better. So, you know, if you've got a portable recorder, you're a long way there. And and just remember, like I said the last time, um, you don't, the transfer medium, the medium you use to have the conversation is there as a backup. And so you can hear each other, but that doesn't have to be where you're recording locally. I just did a podcast last month where one of my guests was talking, was traveling, and he was talking on earbuds, and he sounded terrible on the podcast. But he had a microphone there, and he was recording that separately. And then he sends me the, the file from the microphone. And the final podcast sounds fine. Because he didn't. it didn't matter that he sounded bad on the call, because he sounded good in the file he was recording. So that's something to keep in mind, too. That And, and with iOS, that's kind of important, because sometimes that's the trick, is that you can't record your audio and be on a Skype call on the same microphone on the same device because Apple just doesn't let apps share an input device and doesn't let apps record in the background while you're talking on the phone, unfortunately. This question comes from Glenn. When doing a live recording with two or more mics, what methods do you employ to isolate each guest's voice to their individual track? 
aka how do you get good source isolation? Mm. Good is a strong word for it. Doesn't does doesn't exist. You can't so, edit live recordings like everybody's in an isolation booth, right? Like you basically have to yeah. record to have to edit everything just across all the tracks. But if you get if mm-hmm. you get one of those microphones like we talked about that is pretty directional, so that unless you're right in front of it, you're not going to sound you're just going to sound very faint, and spread people out so that the microphones are just facing individual people. Um, that's the best you can do, right? And and if your mics mm-hmm. are good and they're good at suppressing room sound and background noise, including the the, the other people talking, and then you kind of lay it all over each other. And then I, sometimes I'll do a noise gate, which basically mutes really quiet sounds. Um, it will sound okay. Um, I'd say it comes down to the microphones more than anything yeah, else. You can take a lot of it out. You can take a lot of it out. But it's never going to be like when people are recording uh, away from each other. Right, right. You'll always hear something. Yeah, and and I, I would say I think microphones is the is the best solution. Is if you can get good microphones that that will suppress other people. Like if you look on TV, right, there are a bunch of people sitting in a room together talking, and it doesn't sound echoey and weird, even though they're all sitting at a desk next to each other because they've got yeah. really good really expensive microphones that suppress all the audio that isn't coming right in front of them. And so that that works. And the other way is if that fails, then it's just going to be a lot of work because you could literally step through a document with a bunch of different tracks and delete the spots where everybody is waiting while one person is talking. And you can manually do that. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, we almost never do that with any of our live recordings because it is an enormous amount of work. Um, and it's always better to get your stuff right technically than uh, when you're recording than to have to go back and sort of trim everything out. But like when we did the Summer of Fun last year and I had that thing from the uh, the Masters of Automation conference, like that was not, the mics were okay, but the, it was going through a soundboard and, and I was recording it too and there was some room echo and all of that. And I did some trimming of when, you know, one person was talking. I, I cut out other people's mics. And the end result, I think, sounded really good, but it was a lot of extra work to do that. Yeah, if you're using decent microphones and then you just line up the tracks properly, it's going to be fine. Um, but trying to like edit out, so if, if Jason speaks over me, trying just cutting Jason out on his track will not get rid of Jason. You'll still hear him on mine. Exactly. But the thing that you have when you're live recording at least i've found this whenever i do it is people talk over each other less because you can see people you know when they want to talk because they're looking at you so that's one thing that that can actually help reduce it is just the physical location that you're in um neil has asked do you ever listen to your podcast theme at faster than 1x or consider how it will sound at various speeds when you commission them the upgrade theme sounds great in overcast at 1.4 but has a very different energy than when it's at 1x Yes and no. Um, I listen to how the themes sound, but I don't necessarily make my decisions on it. Uh, My shows are made to be listened at 1x. (laughs) Whatever happens when they're faster than that, I can't control that. Yep. Like, that, that, that is on you as the listener to choose if that's how you want it to sound. Like, there are, like, so... The, the pen addict music, I really think it's fun and we love it, but it sounds terrible sped up. Like with smart speed, it sounds really bad because it's like, it's like some beats and the beats get sped up and it sounds very strange. Um, but 
that's just kind of that's just how it is right like, and, yeah. and but i'm not going to change the music just because some people that might use a faster speed in one application find it to be a bit strange everybody everybody's I'm using different apps they're using different settings in those apps mm-hmm. so the only answer is what i've always said to these kinds of questions which is um my podcasts are only supported at 1x playback <laughs> any other playback speeds are unsupported you can do it they do do it everybody does it that's fine I don't listen to my podcast when I'm making it at anything but 1x. And that's all I can do. I got to pick one and that's the one I pick. So everything else like if if we if our podcast f- came apart in a, a very common overcast setting and sounded disastrous, I suppose we might try to do something to to fix that. If it was broken, right? Like if there was something that was broken and I've had this where like I might have screwed something up in a compressor and like all of the smart speeds and all of the different applications or like the sound trimming or whatever was just chewing them to pieces. Well, I've got to fix that. But like if it's just something like the theme music and it still sounds okay, it's like it's not broken, I'm not going to fix it. But if there's like a persistent issue that's occurring in a popular app, then I'll, I'll try and sort and it you, out. And you're listing at 1.4x. I also think that you end up just thinking that 1.4x is how the podcast sounds. And then when people listen to our live stream, they're like, wow, you guys talk really slow. You're drunk. Yeah. yeah. And the answer is no, that's how we talk. And then you're just listening to it faster. So it's kind of on you. Like, I hope it sounds good. And if if something is broken, fair enough. But like, I think of the ATP theme song as being a little too, a little faster than it actually is, right? Because I listen to that at slightly slightly increased speed, and that's just yeah. I'm always yeah. unhappy about the final drum part on the in the song. I know because it's it's not at the speed that I want because I'm listening in smart speed, yeah. so it's speeding up a little yep. bit. Um, Asher has written in to say, I want to start a podcast with a format that's more like a reportage. Uh, oh, is that is that the word? Reportage. Reportage. Not. Uh, I wouldn't say a like, reportage, but reportage. Yeah, it's a reported thing, more than a recorded conversation. Something like uh, "Welcome to Macintosh." What mic would you recommend that's flexible for studio and field recording? I'm thinking about the Zoom H2N, but I'm not sure. I'm not really familiar with the Zoom H2N. What is it's that? a it's a little uh, portable field recorder like uh, mm. that that is the like all the Zooms comes with a, a you know a microphone in it and it's got like an X I think it has maybe an XLR does it have one XLR maybe it has nothing um, maybe it's just a portable field recorder so what I would say is um, I haven't used the H2 and it might be fine. Um, for flexibility, what I would recommend is what we said, which is get a H four at least get, get, get an H four get, get an H four if you, if you can afford that and a and a handheld mic like those Sure Betas or the cheap uh, Pile knockoff um, that's an XLR mic. Um, especially with the H four, you can get two mics, two XLR cables, and the and the H four. And you can record. I mean, you can use the little thing that you stick in the top, right, to do the field recording. You can. And then when you're doing your like narration later, you can use it as an audio. But if you're doing a sit down interview, you can also just hand them a microphone and hand yourself a microphone and then sit there and have that conversation, which is also really useful when you're in the field, depending on if you're talking to somebody on the street or whether you're going out and doing an interview with somebody at their house or their office or something like that where you might the flexibility of having the second microphone is really nice um so if if you can do that and then as we've said those can work as studio microphones back at your house or wherever you're working and you can even use the h4 as the usb audio interface so it's super flexible if you want if you want something as this question says flexible for studio and field recording i think it's worth thinking about a zoom recorder with an xlr microphone on the outside 
Corey would like to produce a series of podcasts uh, that are related to uh, their local area, San Diego, talking about things like the art and music scene and stuff like that. So Corey has asked, is it counterintuitive to, pr- to produce a podcast for a limited geographical audience? So I will answer this question with a question. What are your goals, Corey? Yeah. Like, w- what do you want to achieve? If you want to make something because you care about it, then do it. Like, if it's just a thing that you really want to make because you have the creative itch to do it, then yes, do it. If you want to make something to get experience, to maybe make something else in the future, then do it. If you want to make something to reach a large audience or maybe to make money at some point in the future, this will probably not get you there because it's limited in scope from the beginning. You have to find people who care about San Diego specifically. I mean, this is the same for literally any show. And please don't just like try and make shows that are popular. But like you need to understand what you're making. I need to understand your goals. And as we said earlier, right at the very top, like it shouldn't be your goal to try and make money, in my opinion, because it's really, really hard to do that. It's like, you know, it's this isn't the same. But the only way I can really try and equate this is like just if you just sit down one day and you're like, I want to be in an Academy Award winning movie. (laughs) Right, because it's podcasting is an entertainment field and it's hard to break into. There's more people that want to do it than there's space for it. And to be successful, it's really hard work and some luck and you have to be the right person for the right time and find the it's it's really, really hard to do. So but I think because people just make this stuff on their own and there are kind of no real gatekeepers for success, I think it feels more approachable and it is more approachable, right? Like this is a field where I can be successful in but probably couldn't in any other type of entertainment field. But it doesn't mean that it is inherently easier to do. So uh, I would just say that, Corey, think about what you want to do and how you want to achieve it, and then go from there. Yeah, I'm a fan of uh, the idea of doing local content because the people in the local... I mean, that's the problem with a lot of stuff is that it's all national. It's all making a a, a play for the big uh, national reach, worldwide reach whatever. So doing something that's more geographically limited, I think could be great. I think because the people are going to know that you're talking about their place and that's that's good. I think, yes, it limits the size of your audience, but they are going to be a really connected audience. It might end up being a place where they will be able to support you ultimately. And like I said earlier, you might not get a lot of CPM advertising uh, in, in that scenario that was worth anything, but you might get support. It's also possible with a local podcast that you could get local advertising support. Now that's complicated and you're going to need to establish yourself well before you get, uh, you know, Jerome's, that's a San Diego reference to, to, uh, to sponsor your podcast, but it's possible. Um, also you could establish yourself as a local podcaster in San Diego and then go to another local media outlet that maybe doesn't do as much in podcasting, or maybe you've got a special take and see if you can work with them somehow in terms of cross promotion, in terms of kind of going under their auspices, because they may have um, either direct support or advertising or both that, and they also have an audience that you might be able to work with, get friendly with. And so I know San Diego well enough to say, you know, maybe you do this and then you start talking to the people at Voice of San Diego, or you start talking to people at the Reader. You probably aren't going to talk to the people at the Union Tribune newspaper, but you never know. Um, but I think that that is a, uh, 
you know, there, there's opportunity there too to sort of like cross with other people's audiences. But you got to get it set up and going first, and prove that you you care and you're into it, and you want it to be a good podcast. And then, um, ideally, you'll be noticed. Like then, then you may even hear from somebody who's like, we want to write about you at the Union Tribune, or we want to write about you at the Voice of San Diego, or we want to link to your podcast in our daily newsletter, or whatever it is. Um, and that, that would go the same way, uh, for any other, any other city. I think that there may be opportunities there, but you got to start with the content and go from there. But I, I'm kind of bullish on local content. I think in the end, that's going to be one of the, um, new frontiers of this sort of content where you've got a more, you know, we're local, Mike, in a way we're a local podcast, right? Because we're a local podcast for, you know, tech people and, and Apple people, right? So it's, so it's global, but it's very topic specific and so our our potential audience is also actually quite small relatively speaking because it's people who are interested in this subject matter it's in the the kind of apple world and a little bit outside of that but mostly in that world um you know san diego is a big city there are a lot of big cities like that you're it's limited but if you can serve that audience really well and that's the trick then I think there are opportunities there. They're just it's just gonna be a different kind of game. But I'd encourage it. I think it's really exciting. I think I think local stuff, my local, you know, the Chronicle here in San Francisco is experimenting again with doing more podcasting. And I think it's a good thing uh to try that because no people uh in London are probably not going to be listening to San Francisco Chronicle podcasts, but that's okay. Um if the Bay Area really loves them, then that's all they really are going for. Our last question today comes from Rick. Rick wants to know, what retains listeners? Audio quality, host camaraderie, or content? Uh, my answer is yes. Yeah. Um, and then Rick wants to know, what is the order of those things? I don't know. I, I, I believe that all of those three, th- three things are what's important to, to keep listeners, that mm-hmm. the sound is good, that the show sounds good, that the, the hosts have a good, uh, like a good, they have a good, like, rapport with each other and that they they either get on or they don't get on or whatever it is like the reason you know but like they work they work well together for for the type of show that you're listening to and that the content is good that it is engaging that it is interesting that it is thought through i don't know what the order of those things are because genuinely i think it depends yeah and so and it's audio quality is less important on the pen addict for example, hmm. people, if something goes wrong, like if we have a guest and that guest's on Skype, or if something happens and Brad is like we're using the Skype, well, nobody even mentions it. Well, like people would mention it if it was this show, right? Like it's just different. It it, it varies by show. It's de- totally true. I immediately go when it's audio quality, I think about the flop house, right? Because the audio quality there is variable and historically has been really bad. It's better now than it was back in the early days. But um, the hosts and the camaraderie between them is incredibly important. It attaches you. I think over the long haul, the people are what attach you to the show. Mm-hmm. So that that's, I think, the the glue. I think that, I think these are all important, but they all react differently. They all have like a different kinds of powers. So the people, I think, creates an emotional attachment. I think the content is probably what gets you there. And then ultimately, if the content drives you away, um, so be it. I think you need to provide content. But content without the, the personality and camaraderie, it's going to be less sticky. Um, and then you're judging the content much more strongly. And then audio quality, I feel like, is almost just a 
you know, either it works or it repels you. And I'm not sure there's a lot of in between there where um, there are podcasts that I've heard from people that I like that they sounded so bad that I never listened to another episode. There are also a couple of podcasts that don't sound very good that I still listen to because I like the people. So I Aloha. I I guess it's hello. Uh, So I guess it's it's um, it's it's there's no there's no formula here. Ideally, all of them are good, but I do think that they all like. If if the if two of them are good, the other one you're willing to maybe um, maybe give a pass to. But I do think in a long term relationship, this is a good way for us to wrap up this thing about podcasts. I worked in magazines for a long time. I I went there from building websites and digital stuff in college, but the only place to get a job was at a magazine. So I got a, a job at a magazine. The th- amazing thing about the magazine is a magazine is a subscription relationship. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It's a relationship. It's a long-term relationship. You're renewing an, a year at a time. And then there's the this this connection between the creators and the receivers, which is we promise to give you a new magazine every month or week or whatever, right? Podcasts are just the same. You subscribe to a podcast and there is a connection there and we are going to promise to give you this thing every week, every fortnight, every month, whatever it is. And you know what it's going to be and you expect that and there's a connection there and that has power and it does create that kind of emotional bond between uh, the hosts and the listeners. Um, I I know that sounds kind of corny but I think there's some truth. Like you hear the voices, you get used to them, you get to know those people and that is the power of podcasting. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of the glue of it and I think that if you get that wrong, then people will still listen to your podcast, but they're going to be way less passionate about it. If you've got, um, if you've just got kind of no connection or it's random people every time from uh, some kind of brand, it's the Bloomberg podcast where there's different Bloomberg people on all the time, but you never recognize any of them. That's going to be, they might have great content and they might sound great, but I do think that it's going to miss the secret sauce of podcasting, which is having that direct connection with the human beings on the other side of the broadcast medium. Thank you so much uh, for listening to this episode um, and, of course, to any of these many episodes that we have produced. We are uh, celebrating our 200th yes. today, which is a, a wild number to be at. And we would only be here, well, we can only be here because you listen. Yes. So we will take the time to thank you so much for whatever is the reason that you listen to this show that you choose to tune in every week. Um, Upgrade is has become and, and and is continuing to become a more and more important part of of my career um and i'm very very proud of what me and jason have done together uh i love this show i think that it is a good show and it is the show that i always wanted it to be from when we started out and i think that we have adapted it into something which is quite special i think and i'm very proud of the work that we do yes um, and we work very hard for it i i agree it's a very important part of of my 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 week it is how I define my week because I, I usually am here on Monday morning doing these podcasts with you. Um, and it wouldn't be possible without the Upgradians as we as they named themselves with our help. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate anybody uh, out there who has supported us over the over the previous 200 episodes. And we're um, and, and, and we go on the summer of fun continues um later this week you're gonna get married and here's how that works your commitment to upgrade is so great that join us next week probably like a day late but no more than that probably gonna be a day next tuesday 
where post-wedding mm-hmm. Mike will join me because his commitment to upgrade and episode 201 is that great. Don't tell don't tell any of my other podcasts. No. But this is the this only is... show that I will be doing post-wedding until I get back from yeah, my honeymoon. So. And I'll be back in August. So if you want to hear whatever it is the married Mike sounds like, then tune in next week, I guess. Tune in next week and you'll hear that a day late. And then, um, and then we'll follow that up while you're on your honeymoon. I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna have a special guest episode. Those are always fun. We have an episode banked that uh, so Mike will reappear um, mm-hmm. via the magic of recording, and that'll be a special episode, part of the summer of fun, because the summer of fun of is only getting started. Yes, we're just beginning. Um, so if you want to send in your ask upgrade questions, always do that. Your snail talk questions, always do that. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks so much to our sponsors for this episode. Thank you for listening and for uh, indulging us over this bumper podcast episode. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as we have enjoyed making it for you. We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, Jason Snell. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) 